Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com. And by JetRide Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L-39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. Hi. I'm Anthony Simmons, and this is my lounge. Ladies and gentlemen, as we approach the 100th episode of Plain Crazy Down Under, please put your hands together for a warm welcome for our hosts, Mr. Steve Vischer and Grant McHeron. Well, g'day folks and welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under. This is a podcast covering aviation issues, the airlines, general aviation and anything else we can think of to do with the subject. From an Australia-Pacific perspective, we are both aircraft tragics. We've both been well and truly bitten by the aviation bug and uh, we've been very privileged to have been allowed to participate in the Airplane Geeks podcast over the last several months, recording our Australia desk report. And what we're going to do here is just for the first few weeks is, is trial doing this by cobbling together the entire report rather than the rather heavily edited version that we send off to the guys in the US. Yes, you get to hear it warts and all. Warts and all, of course, minus all the bloopers. Not that we make any grant. Oh, no, never, never. There's never any here. And so now that you know a bit about who we are and what we're about, let's get on to our first article. Let's go for it. Our first story this week. Good Lord, who were those guys? I don't know, man. I think we should hunt them down and lock them away. Absolutely. Well, g'day, folks, and welcome back to Playing Crazy Down Under, the show where, for the 100th time, we look at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me as always, my good friend and co-host, a man who doesn't even look a day over 45, it's Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Oh, that's because I'm only a few days over 45. But anyhow, hi, mate. How are you doing? Oh, good. Well, I don't feel much over 41, and yet here we are at 100. Oh, well, you know, age. It's just this number, like I was trying to tell you earlier. Yes, that's right, that's right. And welcoming to the show this week as well, our good friend, ATC Ben. G'day, Ben, and we won't even mention your age. Well, it's a number under 41, let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. in fact, if no one knew, it's probably under 31. That's just disgraceful. <laughs> well, here we are, guys. We made it finally to uh, 100 episodes, and it's taken us about four years, but here we are. They said we'd never make it. Yes. Yeah. Three. <laughs> now, uh, boy, I tell you what, uh, it's interesting listening back to that earlier clip there. That's actually from episode one, that clip that I played there. And uh, boy, I tell you what, I even had to enhance that just to bring it up to the standard that we produce uh, our current shows at. Uh, boy, those levels. Who would have ever let that go to air, Grant? Oh, mate, I don't know. But uh, I'm starting to wonder if maybe you should go back and digitally remaster the whole lot. You're right. I'm making a note right now. The first, uh, what, 20 or 30 episodes? 
we could go back uh, and, we at could, least it worked for Lucasfilm we could do it yeah well hey and if you do it really well maybe we can get bought out by Disney oh that'd be awesome that'd be awesome <laughs> yeah I tell you what it's interesting going back and listening to the earlier shows and uh, listening to the show really has evolved over the over and the cringing. years yeah cringing with a lot of people write to us don't they and they say oh we've gone right back and downloaded the back catalogue and we're like no don't stop stop <laughs> please just start at five maybe six so <laughs> there's a little bit of pain but not the first four episodes of extreme pain yeah that's right no well it's it's interesting and uh, you know as we've, we've always uh, tried to strive here to uh, you know be innovative and, and do things a little differently here and you know we've introduced advertising and done all that sort of stuff and it's uh, you know finally that's starting to, to work for us a bit so uh, it's interesting times and uh, I guess we're, we're going to have to work to raise the bar even further for the next hundred but we might talk about that a bit later on oh my just when I was starting to get comfortable with where we're at you want to go and raise the bar again yeah yeah I'd like to raise the bar by making you do more editing you know uh, I'd like to raise the bar by uh, having more beer <laughs> there you go <laughs> well it is a milestone episode of course but we've got uh, plenty to do as we uh, we want to get this one ready so we can uh, start with our Avalon uh, 2013 series preparation we're going to talk a little bit about that a bit later on uh, coming up a bit later in the show Damien Rose our Queensland correspondent drops into the studio he was down here in Melbourne recently on some uh, some family business so uh, we nabbed him and got him here in the studio and uh, he actually presents an interview that he did with uh, his flying instructor from the day that he did his uh, AFR which used to be known as a BFR but uh, as you'll see it's now known as a uh, I believe it's an airplane or an aircraft flight review used to be called the biannual flight review back in my day it just used to be called pain and suffering for many yeah <laughs> uh, we'll be doing some listener mail and shout outs of course and we've also got an interview coming up a bit later in the show with Matt Hall now uh, yes we have Matt on the show uh, from time to time and uh, I'm really happy that we could get him here on our 100th episode I think it's only appropriate because uh, Matt was actually the first person we ever interviewed on this show way back in episode 6 or 7 I think it was Grant uh, it was around 6 or 7 that we were chatting with him but he got released in episode 8 from memory oh, there we go so it shows how bad my memory is in fact Ben uh, what episode was it that you first came onto the show I think it was oh, uh, 17 dub- or something double, I was. it was definitely double digits I remember that. Yeah, I think it was 17 and, so. and in fact you came on with that other guy whose name escapes me do you, you still know that guy Pecky yeah yeah I still I still know that guy um, I see him from time to time we do, we do have to uh, get back on one day and now that we're actually supposedly know what we're doing well you're an OJT <laughs> I mean hello you're an on job trainer you know that's right yes but uh, hey next time you see Pecky uh, just give him a nudge for Steve and I and say <clears throat> 100 for 100 mate remember yeah, that's, that's right. right 100 for 100 well we might talk about that a bit later on in the show too now uh, before we go into our feature interview which is uh, a really great chat with Peter Meehan who is uh, someone who will be familiar to many of you particularly if you go to Avalon he's uh, you'll hear Peter's voice floating across the arena every day as he does all the voiceover work there at Avalon and uh, he does a lot of work in the corporate world as well but uh, Grant before we go off to that interview let's talk about what you've been up to recently you uh, on behalf of the podcast went for a little overseas trip that's right mate I was invited by Malaysian Airlines to go across and witness the one world joining ceremonies went to Kuala Lumpur uh, they flew me in there uh, arrived on the Wednesday went to the uh, ceremonies all day Thursday we were out at Kuala Lumpur International Airport in the uh, rather hot sun it was actually rather wonderful it was only about 55% humidity really enjoyed that uh, you know 30 something degrees but 55% humidity it was it was actually quite wonderful even on the tarmac uh, they they timed it really well apparently they they did it a bit earlier in the morning than normal uh, specifically so that it wouldn't cook everyone who was there a uh, lot of a uh, lot of representatives and CEOs from the other one world member airlines a uh, lot of uh, folks from uh, Malaysian Airlines of course I got to record a really good interview with their deputy CEO of engineering caught up also with the chief commercial officer from Qatar and made a couple of introductions to a number of other CEOs and uh, and folks uh, to organize some 
other interviews later. And yeah, then it was back, freshen up and head off to the press conference where they did the official signing and all that kind of thing. And then from the press conference, it was off to the celebration dinner. So that was a pretty intense day. And then after that, uh, I was uh, taken off by Tourism Malaysia. A bunch of us jumped on a bus and went off to Malacca. Now, anyone who can speak a little Greek is probably laughing in the background, but uh, a very long time ago, Malacca was the uh, the main trading port in the area. Um, it wasn't until its river silted over and they could no longer get the uh, deep hull trading ships in. Once that happened, it started to go downhill from Malacca and everyone moved down to Singapore. But uh, it's currently spelled M-E-L-A-K-A, but it used to be M-A-L-A-C-C-A. And if you look it up, the Straits of Malacca, just on the west of Malaysia. And interesting too, of course, Australia has, uh, you know, a lot of links there with uh, with Malaysia, and in, in fact, we used to have a base there at Butterworth. So, uh, in fact, I think some of our uh, fighter squadrons still go up there occasionally for exercises, if uh, if memory serves. Yeah, that's right, mate. Uh, quite a bit of Australian involvement in Malaysia of one form or another. But uh, unfortunately, when I got back, I was wiped out for quite a while. I uh, managed to come down with a bit of a nasty flu, and it hit me pretty hard, uh, knocked me out for a while, and it's taken me until about now to get back on top of everything. So I've got to get in touch with everyone in Malaysia and let them know I'm alive. Again, and uh, there's a couple more interviews we want to record, and then we'll put everything together in its own special episode that'll come out sometime after Avalon. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, Ben and I are not not feeling that sorry for you, mate, because uh, we know in what class you flew, <laughs> courtesy of Malaysia <laughs> Airlines. You went back there in cattle class, were you? Uh, no, I wasn't. Um, some people would say I have no class. Others might say I'm in a class of my own. But in this case, I got to experience Malaysian Airlines business class service, and it was a lot of fun. It was uh, it was very well done. Uh, on the flight over, I had a seat next to me that was vacant, so I was able to work the whole way over, keep the uh, window open, get some photos of Australia in the daylight. I haven't, uh, quite often in the past, I've been flying at night, but it was great to actually uh, see the red centre, as they call it. Airs Rock was somewhere out there on the left-hand side, but I didn't get to see that. I did actually happen to be looking out the window at just the right moment to see a Singapore Airlines 777 go the other way. That was quite a fascinating view. It, uh, it wasn't a split second there and gone. It was a, a second or two that it was there. Definitely looked really cool. So that was that was pretty good. I got a lot of work done. The the in seat power, bit of space. It was really good. On the way back though, business class was absolutely packed. I wouldn't have really had as much space to do the work. So that was in a packed business class. It's not quite as easy to get your gear out and work as it was when I had a seat next to me available. But I wasn't too worried about that because it had been a very busy four days. I was very tired. So um, with the help of a couple of beers supplied by the uh, the ever helpful and happy Malaysian. Uh, flight attendants. Yeah, I went to sleep for most of the flight. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, that's the best way to do it, mate. I think the last time I came back from the States, I, I had a whole back row of a 777 to myself and I slept all of that trip, I can tell you. Oh, that's that's a good one. I've only slept the whole way from uh, San Francisco to Sydney once. Uh, yeah, very tired after a lot of meetings and parties and uh, had the same deal, a whole row to myself. But look, in this case, uh, it was on an A330-300 and they're using the uh, angled lie flat beds. So they're on about a 12 degree angle. Uh, I found I just rolled on my side and fell asleep and it wasn't too bad. I didn't wind up rolling towards the end of the, or sliding down the seat. So uh, yeah, it was all good. I, I, I thought it was a, a you know good service and 
and a good seat and all up, uh, definitely a lot better than being squished into coach. And, of course, we want to send out a huge uh, word of thanks and a shout-out to our friend Shashank Nigam there at uh, simplyflying.com for uh, recommending us to uh, Malaysia Airlines uh, for the you know for that trip and to get Grant over there. And Unfortunately, only one of us could go, and uh, even if there'd been two tickets, I don't know that I'd have been able to go uh, due to other work commitments. So uh, really fantastic and uh, a great opportunity for uh, us here at Southern Skies Media, and uh, hopefully there'll be more of it in the future. I think, uh, you know, I think we can uh, sort of get to this sort of standard now and get to these more mainstream uh, media gigs, then uh, that's a good thing for us. And it's a good thing for our listeners. We can bring uh, much more up-to-date and uh, newsy content to everybody. So that's a great thing. That's the idea, mate. Uh, We're looking forward to uh, bringing lots more content out to you. And uh, it's going to be a very interesting year, I think, this this time as we get into the uh, Century series of episodes. Absolutely. Now, uh, ATC, Ben, let's talk briefly about ATC. I see uh, in an article recently in uh, australianaviation.com.au, which incidentally has come out in a fantastic new format. I quite like the way they've done that. Uh, there's an article there that there's uh, some changes perhaps in the wind for the way air traffic is uh, managed here in Australia, uh, something about One Sky. That's right, Steve. Uh, the One Sky Australia project is a, a joint project between uh, the civil side of, of ATC, being uh, Air Services Australia, and uh, the Royal Australian Air Force uh, for the military side. At the moment, we have two separate systems, one for civil, one for uh, for military, for uh, as far as the radar uh, control side of it and both the two systems are now due for replacement so moving forward the decision has been made to combine it into one project get everyone on the same system and uh, get some more uh, synergies and uh, you know a bit of a, a bulk buy discount if you will for having the, the system for both of us I mean obviously Australia is a, a small air traffic management system uh, to manage so uh, we don't have the uh, the benefits of the scale if say the FAA went to buy a new system or something like that. That. It's still a significant. It's quite innovative in the way they've they've restructured over the last, let's say, couple of decades. And of course, you know, moving from a, a bunch of uh, more uh, local uh, control units to basically having two major air traffic control centres. I, I imagine in the world of air traffic controller, you know, is that quite unique, or do they they have that sort of concept in other parts of the world as well? It's it's unique as, in as far as we have such a large airspace, and it's only split into two actual operational centres. And we actually have eleven percent of the world's airspace that's uh, controlled from Australia and we only have the two air traffic control centres that are doing the majority of that airspace. I mean, obviously there's the, the approach control units and the towers in various locations as well. But that said, we don't have the, a lot of the traffic density either with like when you're looking at places like the Indian Ocean and uh, half the Tasman Sea, the Southern Ocean and places like that. Uh, we have a lot of oceanic airspace, whereas the American or the Canadians have a lot bigger system for maybe a smaller geographic area, but they've got a lot more traffic in that same area. So I guess that's the point that I'm making. And, and I guess the fact that we've got such a, a large amount of airspace to cover, even though we've got a relatively small population, it sort of dictates that we, we need to get out there and embrace technology. And uh, just as was done when the current system was brought in, I guess uh, this perhaps might be another evolution of that and uh, personally I think the idea of perhaps uh, you know bringing the military and the civil airspace or air traffic control systems uh, a bit more in line with each other uh, you know a common platform that to me only makes sense so uh, whichever contractor ends up getting it I know that uh, this article here in the in the magazine focuses on uh, Lockheed Martin but uh, I would imagine in fact it alludes here that to the fact that there'll be several contractors uh, showing their wares at uh, the Australian International Air Show this year at Avalon so uh, that'll be very interesting and uh, mate uh, I guess that'll give uh, you a lot of opportunity 
opportunity to go and do interviews. That's right, and uh, go and do some interviews and uh, try and bring you guys along for the ride and uh, do a little poking and prodding myself to see what I might be working with in uh, 10 years' time. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you know, nothing like getting up ahead of the game, mate. One of these days you may be the manager of air traffic control. Who knows? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, mate, friend, pal. Well, as we record this, the Australian International Air Show is only about a week and a half away, so uh, very exciting, and uh, playing Crazy Down Under is uh, planning a, a much larger presence. We've been talking about that for a while. We'll actually be taking a team of seven into the air show this year, and uh, we hope to bring you a, a much uh, greater coverage than we did the last time. We think we did a pretty good job the last time, but uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, some of the opportunities that we'll uh, be able to take advantage of this time with uh, a much bigger team. And with that in mind, we move to our feature interview, which we recorded just a few days back, with a man who was nothing short of synonymous with the event, and if not the public face, then very much its public voice. So a very great pleasure to welcome to the show, uh, joining us on the line from Avalon today, the voice of Avalon, in fact, Peter Meehan. Hi there, Peter. Hi there. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you and to have the opportunity to talk about aviation and in particular the Australian International Air Show, the biannual event, uh, which creates uh, so much interest amongst the aviation fraternity, but also the general public who have this natural-born curiosity as to man's ability to punch through the air at high speed and glide through the air gracefully and, in fact, fly vintage warbirds that give a beautiful reflection of aviation capabilities from yesteryear. Now, Peter, you're down there at the moment, uh, you know, helping to get the event ready. We're a couple of weeks out from the event as we record this. How is the uh, show uh, shaping up this year? Well, it's coming together very well. Um, Like um, all air shows around the world, uh, things do tend to come together at the 11th hour because uh, military commitments are such that uh, military uh, aircraft units and detachments could be deployed anywhere on the face of the earth at short notice. So we could say uh, that XYZ will be appearing at the air show, but uh, weather in the case of warbirds or light rag and tube aircraft could make it difficult for them to get here. But the military aircraft, while they make a commitment to be here, are always Uh, on the edge uh, when it comes to uh, deployment or having to be somewhere else. But as we sit here, you and I talking, we have a very strong military component from the United States Air Force and our own Royal Australian Air Force and a Navy commitment, uh, which is very interesting as well. So this air show will unfold as other air shows have in previous years, but we do have one or two firsts at uh, the 2013 event that we're very proud to be able to talk about. Having worked at uh, tarmac operations a number of times on the ground crew side of things, we used to have the phrase which was that until it had cleared the fence, landed, taxied and shut down, we didn't believe it was coming. But, uh, mate, it sounds like there's <laughs> yes. going to be some great ones this year. Are you able to? Uh, what are you able to tell us about? Well, for the very first time from the United States, the uh, Breitling Wingwalkers are coming. Now, these are two steamer aircraft, 1930s vintage, robust aeroplanes designed to fly forever, trained many military personnel over a long period of time. These magnificently presented uh, Breitling aircraft uh, will have wing walkers uh, fitted atop. Now, we've had wing walkers at the air show before, but the colour and spectacle of the Breitling wing walkers will be stunning as they are overseas and they create a, a great amount of interest. And from a military point of view, the F-22 Raptor, it was at the air show two years ago. There were two of them on the ground, but they were not able to display at that time. On good authority, the Raptor, the F-22, will display its first 
public display ever at the Australian International Air Show, March 1, 2, 3, for the general public and on trade days, uh, 26, 27, 28 of February. Uh, we are pretty wrapped that the Raptor is here in Raptoria uh, to please the military enthusiasts and also to give a, uh, a, a very deep insight into the uh, battle space capability of the United States Air Force via the F-22 Raptor. Peter, uh, your voice is so familiar to uh, to many of our uh, audience. You've been doing the uh, the air shows for many, many years. Um, of course, you've been in, in radio. You do lots of uh, voiceover work, of course. Um, but many people may be uh, interested to know and may not be aware that you're, uh, you've, you've had a, a quite a long association with the Royal Australian Air Force. I joined the Air Force Reserve as a public affairs officer in 1990, and uh, I thought I'd be in it for, well, two, three, five years to provide uh, external media knowledge and capability into the ADF. But it's now been 23 years um, since I joined, and uh, the missions I've been on, uh, the media work that I've been involved in, uh, the public affairs support I've provided for Air Force, Army and Navy over the journey of time has been nothing short of interesting and uh, challenging, uh, some of it uh, bordering on uh, mild, mildly dangerous, but uh, when you're away on deployment, if you're in harm's way, well, there's always plenty of very capable people around you to look after you. So uh, at the risk of uh, bordering on uh, sensationalism by saying that, uh, to be deployed as a public affairs officer, it's a very safe job to have, uh, but you are in an environment which is right at the leading edge of military capability. A lot of interest in being in the reserve and reserve capability for Army, Navy and Air Force, so from an Air Force point of view, really does transform today's RAAF into the one team air arm of our nation. So uh, reserve support via the medical capabilities. Uh, most of the senior medicos in Australia are reservists in both Army, uh, in Army, Navy and Air Force. They provide that capability to the full-time members of the ADF and uh, there's many other areas and the public affairs area is one also that uh, outside uh, media practitioners and communicators can join the ADF in the reserve capacity and give the ADF that extra dimension. You're talking about some of the deployments that you've done. I, I note here on your bio that you've been to places such as East Timor and uh, and you've, you've also uh, helped do public affairs for the Sydney Olympics. Any other uh, you know really interesting places that you've been to in that time? Well, yes, there have been quite a few. Um, Operation Tandem Thrust comes to mind uh, around about 205, I think. It was uh, where we uh, set off at 3 a.m. with a media contingent to go to Shoalwater Bay uh, to watch the United States Marines come ashore in a simulated uh, beachhead landing. Now, to coordinate the media in the dark, uh, walking through creeks to get to the Shoalwater Bay area, uh, that was not only good fun but extremely challenging. And it placed today's media members actually in the battle space environment uh, in a coalition led exercise uh, at Shoalwater Bay in Queensland. That was a really, really interesting exercise and it gave Australian media the opportunity to look firsthand at what the Royal Australian Air Force does in collaboration with the United States Air Force and the US Marines. It was really uh, at the sharp end of those combined capabilities and the demonstration was uh, absolutely first class and highly professional. So sort of the closest you could get to a real being there in combat without the live fire. Yes, yes. Like uh, the... Uh, LLMA fire firepower displays at Pakapunyal. Now, 
media coordination for myself and others in those environments, they're also very challenging. Not just going to Pakapanul, coordinating the media, but getting around in the dark, being safely located for live firepower displays uh, by day and by night. Spectacular to say the least, but there again, uh, you've got media members right at the cold base of uh, army capability, particularly army, in a live firepower display with uh, Air Force aircraft dropping uh, live ordnance from five or six uh, kilometres away. So real-time battle space, real demonstration, great opportunity to communicate the uh, capability of uh, the combined uh, uh, military arms of Australia via, via the broad spectrum media. I think it's probably the best recruiting tool that the ADF has these days is their, their ever-increasing uh, participation, not only in the mainstream media, but uh, they're certainly starting to to uh, make quite a big foray into the realm of, you know, so-called new media, social media. Yes, uh, social media isn't new to the ADF. They've been in it for quite some time. Opportunities to uh, flex muscle and demonstrate at air shows, yes, that goes hand-in-hand with exercises. This is uh, ADF capability putting into practice what their people train to do. So that can be done in peacetime very effectively and spread the message for the ADF that a job in the Defence Force via Defence Jobs .gov.au is a worthwhile exercise to go online and find out what exactly is on offer today. Now Peter if we could uh, move over to the, the interesting topic, to, interesting for us of uh, air show commentary. Now uh, we gave our first shot last year at uh, doing some air show commentary at a local air show up in New South Wales and I must tell you I have newfound respect for you because uh, we thought it would be uh, quite a snap to do but it's uh, it's very very challenging and you've been doing it for so long. How do you prepare for commentary of an air show and particularly an event as long as Avalon? Well there are three things to remember in airshow commentary. Uh, number one is uh, research and planning. Without that, uh, you are really going to go out and have to wing it. Therefore, you'll have gaps in the commentary. You'll have mistakes being made. You'll have people making comment that they didn't really set out to make comment because they feel they've got to fill the space. So that environment can be filled with error. So number one, research and uh, planning. Then that leads to spending time with the ringmaster and the people who actually put on the displays to understand their psyche and to understand continuity in air displays that have got to meet the requirements of CASA and the safety initiatives that are put forward by the ringmaster and the conveners of any air show. And number three is that you must you absolutely must have your commentary information in dot point form and certainly never, never, ever in written form. The audience will pick up very quickly that something is being read. That shows uh, or demonstrates a little hand on heart, if I can put it that way. But someone talking from the heart with passion, dovetailed with what they're seeing before their eyes, that is the absolute key uh, to the air show. So a subset of point three is the commentators in a group form, and we have three. Myself, Dave Prosser from Australian Aviation. He is also a flying instructor. And uh, Ben Cartwright. Current serving a Royal Australian Air Force member. Um, these people are not only knowledgeable, but they're uh, very well briefed in their craft and they know how to uh, fill in the, the grey spots or the gaps with interesting information. And another subject of that is don't talk too long. Don't, don't <laughs> turn it into a talk fest. It cannot be a talk fest. If it's a talk fest, audiences will tune out. 
So we choose to break up the talking with historic voice grabs, uh, pre-recorded messages ranging from safety messages to Winston Churchill making a comment as the Spitfire prepares to climb centre stage. Break that up with the uh, governments of the day during World War II, the uh, military leaders of World War II, the military leaders, say, of the shock and awe era in uh, Iraq when the Royal Australian Air Force committed number three squadron to go over. So it's the it's the dispersal of the information at your fingertips in a flowing format. But if anyone thinks they can do commentary at an air show and talk for a quarter of an hour, uh, no one will be listening after the sixth minute. <laughs> yep. we, no, that's very true. We discovered that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, uh, what you're saying is dead on. I'd, I'd heard a couple of these things before and managed to uh, do my homework on a few things, and it was quite bleeding obvious. Uh, a number of friends said, well, we could tell which aircraft you knew about, <laughs> which ones you'd done the homework <laughs> on, uh, because that yeah. oh, look, We don't know everything. You know, don't, don't let me uh, lead anyone to think that that we know everything. We certainly do not know everything. We depend upon experts in their field to come forward into the commentary and, and we welcome them. No, that's that's a great way to mix it up as well. And and also a couple yes. of moments where, especially if you've got the warbirds going by, where you can say, and let's just pause for a moment and enjoy the sound of this particular type of engine. And, and it comes from the field. And, and that's also really good for the people who are trying to uh, record the sounds. Yes. You know, not, having us, uh, not having us chatting away in the background is, is good if you're trying to record the sounds of a, of a dirty grey. Uh, yes. radial engine. Yes, when the radials come through, uh, the Packards, the Allisons, the Merlin engine comes through, these uh, classic sounds deserve uh, full attention and we choose to go to silent as those aircraft approach and resume commentary after they leave I think one of the skills that we had to uh, really uh, sort of pick up on the day that we had our first go at it was here in this show, of course, uh, as we explained to you before we started recording, we're talking to an aviation audience where we encourage people to talk the jargon, etc. But I guess at a, a more public display, you've got to sort of, it's not really a case of dumbing it down by any means, of course. It's simply a case of describing it perhaps a bit more broadly so that the general public who are not engaged with aviation perhaps can understand it a little better. We don't use acronyms ever. Uh, let me give you a classic example. Two air shows ago, a young girl came up to me, she would have been every bit of 14 or 15 with her parents, and said to me as she was walking past the commentary, we keep hearing you say something like R-R-F or R-A-A or R-A-A-F. Can you tell me what that means? So therein lies the, the view that in a crowd of 100,000 people, Royal Australian Air Force, R-A-A-F, actually doesn't register with everybody. Yeah. And the younger demographics out there in the audience, uh, they don't deserve to be fed with information that is not easily digestible. He or she who makes the audience jump through a hoop to understand them is doomed to fail. No, especially when you've got uh, the general public, the crowd there, they're wanting to be entertained. They don't want to stop and think, whereas people who are tracking down a show such as this one might actually be wanting to think about what things are like in aviation and maybe do a bit more learning to come up to speed. So, yeah, it's, it's the, the whole different attitude, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yes, it uh, certainly is. And, you know, we're in the business of, of promoting the aerospace industry. That goes via the exposition, which is one of the biggest in the world, and it's called Brains Every Air Show. That goes via the skills and learning syllabus that we have in the air show for young people. Uh, aviation knowledge, the learning curve of the theory of flight, lift equals weight equals thrust equals power, is when an aeroplane will fly. And once there is the understanding at the younger end of the audience that that is what it's all about, then 
the interest in aviation grows into knowledge and experience. And, of course, the uh, one other thing that uh, floats in and around there with lift and thrust and power and so on is uh, money, the burning of money. Uh, that <laughs> yes. comes up quite yes. often. Yes, well, the further you push the throttle forward, the more money you're spending. <laughs> the more the dollar bills come flying out the back, yeah. Yes, yes. Peter, you've, you've spoken that you're quite clearly you're heavily involved with the Avalon Air Show and you have been for some time. How did you first get involved with them? Well, in 1976, I learned to fly at Royal Newcastle Aero Club and a fellow up there who's very famous in promoting uh, air shows and promoting aviation to youth, a fellow called Bill Hitchcock, was due to do the commentary at the 76 air show at Royal Newcastle Aero Club. He developed a throat infection and someone said, look, there's that joker over there who works on the radio in Newcastle back in those days. Uh, you were the commentator. I went, huh? <laughs> I said, I'm here learning to fly. I don't do air show commentary. Well, the president of the Aero Club said, well, guess what? Yes, you are. And, I, and here's what you're going to be talking about. So it was a baptism of fire. Then that uh, led to uh, rural air shows, Stone, Newcastle, uh, Stofields, uh, west of Sydney, where I became connected. That was the early connection of the international air show, uh, Schofields, and the Bicentennial Air Show at Richmond back in 1988. These were the, the, uh, the foundation building blocks for the air show as we know it today. Back then, the Chief of Air Force, now, retired, now, now Deputy Chief of the Defence Force, Mark Binskin, was the young a flying officer display pilot for the FA-18 Hornet, 1986. The aircraft did its first public display, and I got tipped into the commentary to do that. And that was a mar- just a marvellous, another baptism of fire, watching the FA-18 Hornet come over for the very first time uh, in high alpha, yep. uh, plenty of power, formating on the Sopwith Pup. <laughs> you know, a, 19, a 1913 Sopwith Pup operated by the RAAF Museum. And the picture opportunity, those pictures went around the world. The Hornet formatting next to the Sopwith Pup. Uh, Mind you, the Hornet was slowly passing the Sopwith (laughs) Pup, which was going flat out at 90 knots, and the Hornet was doing 110 knots. So it never really did fully formate. It passed very slowly. Uh, Mark Binskin, the young pimple-faced flying officer back in that era, went on, of course, to be Chief of Air Force and uh, today is uh, Deputy Chief, Deputy CDF, Chief of the Defence Force. It's amazing how the uh, career can progress, isn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, Marvellous people uh, and they've uh, remained with the faith. They go into the military with a dream. Uh, Many stay with the military to follow that dream. Some leave the military to get into uh, civil aviation and follow another dream. Life is about growth and turning circles and we all have our turn. Uh, But those two have stuck with their dream. And a fine example of that is uh, Robin Leader Phil Frawley, a fast jet, fully qualified flying instructor with number 76 squadron at Williamtown, is the oldest fully qualified flying instructor in the RAAF, but last week was named by the Guinness Book of Records as the oldest fast jet fully qualified instructor in the world. The Guinness Book of Records is currently publishing his details as the oldest in the world. So that speaks volumes for staying with the dream as a young man to follow through with an Air Force career, but it also speaks volumes about aviation safety, the practices of uh, learning to fly fast jets, 
and entering into that uh, aerial combat world where safety comes first, uh, underscored by a 61-year-old man who is teaching uh, young 19, 23-year-olds about the principles of, uh, of aerial combat. It is just a wonderful story and a fine example of RAAF capability. Peter, um, amongst you many other things you mentioned there, of course, that you were learning to fly, and you've, uh, it says here in your bio that you've uh, got your private pilot's licence. Do you do much private flying these days? Uh, no. No, sadly, no. Um, I got married again. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah. And kids kids came along again. Ah. So, so, so there's the uh, the divvying up of the available funds, and I think I should leave it at that. Yes, <laughs> yes. Fair enough, fair enough. I think. Well, Peter, it's, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show, and um, we're looking forward to, uh, to hearing you, uh, of course, at Avalon, and we'll hope to uh, meet up with you there. Peter Meehan, of course, journalist, broadcaster, voiceover guy, and the voice of Avalon. You can find out more about him at PMCC. Peter, thanks for joining us here on our 100th episode. That's a pleasure, Steve. Pleasure, Grant. It's been a privilege to be with you. From all of us here at the Stuck Mike Avcast, this is Len. And this is Carl. And this is Rick. This is Sean. A very special congratulations to our friend Stephen Grant and the entire crew of Playing Crazy Down Under on your 100th episode. Good going, dudes. Right on. Do you have the need? The need for speed? Jet Ride Australia is the country's premier fighter experience and the perfect gift for every budding Top Gun. From mild to wild, Jet Ride tailors each flight individually to give you the mind-blowing ride of your life. To make the dream a reality, check out jetride.com.au slash PCDU or Aussies can call 1300 554 876. Jet Ride. Forget the rest. Fly with the best. Plan your flight. Fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breathe and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. And welcome back, folks. Now, of course, uh, Damien Rose is our uh, Queensland correspondent, and uh, normally we talk to him via Skype, but uh, he's down here on family business at the moment, and he's here in the studio with me. How are you, mate? Yeah, very good. Thanks, Steve. Now, uh, welcome to the studio, and uh, now I guess we we should ask the obvious question. Did you fly down or did you drive down? I drove down. Uh, it was uh, it was tempting to go and hire an aircraft, but to get one to fly myself, my wife and the five children, it'd have to be pretty big. Yeah, we'd have to charter a 737 or something to bring you <laughs> on drive down here. Something like that. Well, it's uh, fantastic that you did down here now. Uh, we're going to present an interview that you recorded recently, but uh, we might just talk about what you were doing. You were doing your what used to be known as a biannual flight review, but I think it's been renamed. Yeah, it's now called the Aeroplane Flight Review. Um, it still has to be done every other year, and I uh, was fortunate enough to do it with a gentleman by the name of Paul McEwen. Now, Paul uh, is a captain on an Embraer 190 for Virgin Airlines, uh, and also as a side business has a RAOs Flight School in Gympie in Queensland, and he's uh, under the 
AOC of the Northern Rivers Aero Club, I believe it is. He's able to conduct some limited training and, and do things like aeroplane flight reviews. He's in the process of getting his own AOC. As I, from memory, he goes through that in the interview. But yeah, it was great to be able to spend the time with him and get his insights and, and a couple of his tips when it came to my flight training with him. Now, of course, most of our listeners will be uh, familiar with uh, what goes on in these reviews, but for people that are listening that are perhaps not familiar with what goes on in one of these flight reviews, can you take us through basically, it's a proficiency check, isn't it? Uh, twice, once every couple of years, you've got to get a proficiency check. That's right. Uh, it's it's not really a pass or fail thing. It's something that the instructor's there to assess your level of proficiency, as you've said, and just to make sure that you're safe, more or less. Uh, and depending on, for example, I, ha- I have a commercial pilot's license, but I said to Paul, I'm not using it. I don't intend on using it in the foreseeable future. If I do, I'll probably go back to him and, and tighten things up a bit more. So he didn't really care. He still assessed me as if I was flying commercially because that's the level of license I hold. So depending on obviously the level of uh, license or requirement that you need to be flying to, then i.e. altitude holding, heading holding and so forth, they want to make sure that your radio procedures are proficient, that you uh, abide by all the laws and regulations. And one thing that was really stressed in my airplane flight review was emergency procedures. We took off from Gympie and flew down to Maroochydore, Sunshine Coast Airport, did a touch and go there. It was quite funny, actually. We came around, I had to report at three miles on final, which I did. And just at that point, there was a Jetstar A320 that was taxiing across the runway I was going to use. I was using the cross strip and taxiing up, uh, getting ready to take off on runway 18. And he went, oh, well, there's a Jetstar aircraft. I wonder if he'll have to wait. And sure enough, he reported ready, obviously, about, you know, 30, 40 seconds later. And the tower controller came back and said, oh, you know, Jetstar flight, whatever it was, you'll just have to wait for aircraft on final runway 1-2. And so he sat there and basically sat there at the threshold waiting for the best part of, I don't know, two minutes for me to continue down the approach, sitting at, what, 70 knots. <laughs> to do the touch and go and then to get out of the way and uh, Paul was just having a bit of a chuckle because it was um, the opposition. The opposition, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. it's uh, some of the things you've got to put up with when you're, uh, when you're uh, you know, in the in the flying game. That's it. So then we took off from Sunny Coast, headed back towards Gympie and, um, and the one thing that really I thought was very beneficial in this flight review and with a flight review, you have the opportunity obviously to say to your instructor, and this is what I said to Paul, was a bit rusty on practice force landings and I didn't even mention engine failures, but he gave them to me. Like Mm. I had, I think I counted either four or five. It was five engine failure or simulated engine failures all up. And that's because of their RAO's background that he's very heavy on the engine failures, which was, was awesome was really, really good training. Well, I mean, that's a good point, isn't it? Because um, I, I guess once you, uh, you know, I guess the tendency would be once you've got your license and you're out there flying, then, uh, you know, a lot of people could tend to be a little bit lax about uh, looking at your engine out procedures and uh, force landings and all that sort of thing. So uh, like you say, it's it's very critical that they, they check you at least every other year and make sure that you're proficient with it. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like you had a good flight and uh, you grabbed Paul at the end of that flight and uh, sat in a hangar and got the microphone out. So uh, let's have a listen. Damien Rose here, up in Queensland. I'm with Paul McEwen, who is the director of the Recreational Flying Company and, uh, among other things, flies um, E-Jet for Virgin. So welcome to Plane Crazy Down Under, Paul. Thank you, Damien. It's wonderful for you to take the time out. Just wanted to get your background on flying, where it started and, and, and how it progressed and perhaps some interesting stories and tangents that came about along the way. Okay, sure. Well, um, I uh, started my flying uh, originally in gliders uh, in the last year that I was at school, which was 1991. I think I went solo halfway through my my last year at school in in gliders. And and really, um, 
got into gliding originally for no other reason than it was the was the, the only thing I could afford at the time. Um, with some uh, some help from my parents, uh, but looking back on it now, I'm always very very thankful that that that's uh, how I got my start in aviation because I continue to rely on the the skills that gliding gave me uh, to to this day. But yeah, started off in gliding and then when I left school, um, uh, I had a single track mind. I really more than anything during school wanted to get into the air force, and that was I guess. And my dream. Unfortunately, the the, um, uh, the maturity and the ability curve didn't kind of align uh, during school. So uh, rather than studying my my uh, lessons, I was up the back of the class reading flying magazines. So <laughs> when the end of school came, I uh, my best mate and I both wanted to get in the air force, and he was more studious than I. And he got in, and I, I didn't. So it was it was quite disappointing. But um, I, I focused. Uh, on flying from the moment I left school and um, just took the civilian flying path. Uh, always, or initially at least, with, with one eye on the fact that I'd, I'd probably still try and get into the Air Force. So, uh, gee, for the first um, first five years or so out of school, I, I tried to get back and study maths and physics, which I, I failed at school. Eventually, completed them both at night school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, by the time I finally had the uh, prerequisites and was was ready to have another go at the Air Force life and sort of moved on. So whilst that was happening, after school I, I just uh, worked a, um, you know, a heap of horrible jobs to, to scrape up the money for flying lessons and I did a, I did a, a uh, conversion from gliding to ultralights, which right. was sort of uh, just gaining a bit of popularity at the time. So what kind of ultralights were you flying at that stage? Uh, initially a very early light one. Right. Uh, and then uh, the Drifter. And I'd actually been introduced to the Drifter whilst I was still at school. Uh, I grew up on the Sunshine Coast and in those days, uh, it's no longer the case, but in those days we had an air service out of Noosa Airport. Uh, a little twin otter used to fly to Brisbane and, and the world from Noosa, well that's, that's all long gone. But there was another airfield out at Tiwa mm-hmm. on the Noosa North Shore and uh, it's, it's actually quite remote to get there you've got to go across on the ferry uh, across the Noosa River and then drive on a, a long and winding bush track to get out to this, this strip so Tiwa was an emergency landing ground in the Second World War but it's unoccupied there's a little hangar on there but uh, I had a tourist map when I was a kid and I used to always go out to the Noosa airport and watch the Twin Otters flying but I had a tourist map and it showed this landing airfield at, at, uh, at Tiwa being uh, you know, desperately afflicted with the aviation bug, I think, um, gosh, I must have been about 12 or 13, I got on my push bike and actually rode all the way out to T.Y. Airfield, which took the best part of two hours, went across on the ferry, the ferry driver gave me a passage across the river for free and I pedalled out on this dirt road and arrived out at T.Y. Airfield in the middle of nowhere, thirsty and, uh, and skinny and sunburnt. And there was a drifter on the field and a, a four-wheel drive, and there were a couple of local pilots who were flying a very early drifter out there. And they felt sorry for me and uh, and took me for riding this thing. So yeah, I'd actually had my first experience in a, in a drifter, uh, yeah, long before I, I flew in anything else. But uh, yeah, so after school, I did the did the endorsement in the light wing, which which was a conversion from gliding to to uh, ultralight, and then flew the drifter after that began a long association with the drifter but um, after, after that I, I, I um, 
went to GA and did a did a PPL, mm-hmm. uh, and then ran out of money, as is so often the case, uh, and really didn't didn't know how I was going to proceed. I just didn't have the money to go through and get a commercial at that stage, uh, and, and couldn't really see how I was going to achieve my goals. Um, but I, you know, I knew uh, that I'd have to one way or another because I I was you know, so in love with the the um, profession. So I found an ad for an, an ultralight instructor's rating, which uh, was was going on down the Gold Coast at a little airstrip um, just opposite Dreamworld at Coomera. And in those days, the ultralight instructor rating was a one-week course. It was it was fairly light on, uh, but it was in my price range. So I went down there and jumped on this course, and a, a week later, I had an ultralight instructor's rating in my in my pocket, and uh, did a bit of instructing down there on the coast. Uh, for Barry Sibley at the time it was a crazy little strip it's no more than barely over 300 metres long yeah, right. in the timber over the, over the road from Dreamworld but we flew quite effectively out of there and um, even sent people solo on the strip which is quite incredible thinking back to it and, and just to interject there um, and you'll have to excuse my ignorance but that was before the days of RAOs as an organisation yeah, it wasn't RAOs back there, but the, the organisation existed. It was the Australian Ultralight Federation. Okay. Yeah, more or less existing in its, in its present guise. Right. Yeah, but uh, the, the requirements certainly in those days for instructor ratings were, were much less than you find now. But it was a good time to get into ultralight instructing because uh, in, the, in the early 90s, ultralights were really getting a kick along. It was just in the period where, um, you know, GA was starting to price itself out of the market. Uh, the availability of new aircraft in GA was, was pretty poor assessment, hyper out of production, and people looking for a cost-effective alternative to fly were, were naturally leaning towards the, uh, the AUF as it was in those days, an ultralight aircraft. So um, I did, a, did uh, oh, probably three or four months' work for Barry Sibley down on the Gold Coast, and then uh, got a call from the flying school at Boona, which was associated with the the Ostflight factory there that manufactured the Drifter, and they were looking for an instructor, and uh, so I went over to Boona. Gradually we, we got busier and busier, and I was working nights at that stage, so I'd, I'd work at night in Brisbane, then drive down to Boona to instruct in the day. But we had to worry about flight and duty times in those days. <laughs> I'd have been in big trouble. But, um, uh, yeah, gradually we got busier and busier at Boona, and I was able to give up first one uh, then the other night job and concentrate on the ultralight instructing full time. Nice. Uh, after a time, I ended up becoming the CFI there and, and ran the ultralight school at Boona. Uh, we had a fleet of five drifters for a time. We were incredibly busy. We were doing flying rates that most GA schools would have been envious of. And uh, yeah, it was terrific fun. We had a great bunch of people there and yeah, some of the best years of my life. I, was, I think I was there for five years instructing and test flying. Uh, on drifters. So the, the kind of clientele that would come through to fly the ultralights, they might be anyone from someone like yourself that was a young fellow wanting to get into the air or right through to businessmen and farmers and... Yeah, well, look, surprisingly, uh, the uptake from, from young people wasn't wasn't huge, although we did have a few young students. The, the, the main demographic with our, our students down there were, were middle-aged guys, um, more often uh, than not guys that had always, always had a passion for flying but um, you know, work and family and life had sort of intervened and they weren't able to 
to do that in their younger years and then they, they found themselves at a time in their life when kids were off their hands and they had a bit more disposable income and so decided to come out and learn to fly and I guess the, the wonderful thing about that environment was uh, you were dealing every day with people that were, you know, grown men that were realising their, their childhood dreams. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just found that an infectious environment. It was, was wonderful. The, the sense of accomplishment that, that you'd, you'd see in people when they, they went through and get, got their licence was absolutely extraordinary. And often, you know, they'd take a bit longer than, than a younger student. Uh, but they they loved every minute of it. And mm. for an instructor, that was a very rewarding thing as well. Enjoyed the journey. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so from then being CFI and, and test flying the drifters, you went back into GR. Yeah. So I, I mean, I was fortunate in that I ended up working basically as a as a as a professional pilot for about five years before I had a commercial license. Uh, while I was instructing at, at, at Boona, I. I Saved my money and studied it at night for my uh, my, my commercial uh, subjects, and and was eventually able to put myself through the, the 200 hour commercial course. And you did that out of Archerfield? Yeah, that's right. Initially with uh, with Gil Lates flying school at Archerfield, and then I went on and did an instructor rating. And were you mainly flying like 150s or 172s in those days? Yeah, the GA stuff was uh, was 150s, 172s. Mm-hmm. When I um, finished up at Boona, the, the natural progression was then to, to move into instructing in, in uh, at Archerfield. And uh, so after uh, after Boona, I ended up working for Barry Hempel at Archerfield mm-hmm. for uh, quite a few years, which was another exciting chapter in my life. Very good. And so you instructed for how long in GA? Uh, was with Barry, I think, for about four years. Four years? Yeah. And then, and of, and of course, you once again got to see, you probably saw both ends of the, the sword, I'd imagine, different to those coming to fly ultralights, where you would have had young bucks wanting to become commercial pilots that perhaps were hitting brick walls or getting frustrated or running out of money, um, versus perhaps others who were trying to live the same experience that you would have seen in ultralights, I imagine. Yeah, I guess, uh, well, that's right. At, at Hempels, we, we had a um, you know, great variety of students. And, uh, yeah, the contrast was, was fairly noticeable. I mean, I, I remember early in the piece at, at Hempels um, taking a, a, a young uh, student up for a lesson. And we were out in the training area, and I was, I was pattering through some, some manoeuvre and, and, and uh, I turned around to look at him to discover that he, not only were his hands and feet completely off the controls but he was looking out the window with a complete lack of interest and I, I found that really shocking you know, yeah, especially right. because um, I had learned to, to value every 0.1 of an hour that I ever spent in the air I, I found that a little bit a little bit confronting um, and this guy this kid he just he was a lovely lovely kid but just didn't want to be there you know his parents had put him into the flying school do something with him, I guess, and uh, yeah, there was just no interest, no, no passion. That seems so foreign to me. Yeah, <laughs> it was, a, it was, a, it was a bit of a shock. So, uh, I must admit, when I was at Hempels, my my strong preference was uh, was to train the the private pilots rather than the commercial pilot. I just found the environment was much more uh, like that which I had known in Burnet, where you're dealing with enthusiasts and people that really love their flying. 
Um, that's not to say that commercial training couldn't be really good as well, and uh, and um, you know, certainly later on I, I came to, to enjoy that. But but yeah, the private pilot and the recreational pilots always been close to my heart because they're they're there purely and simply because they they want to fly. They, they love it. Um, so at Hempels, yeah, I I guess I concentrated mainly on the private flying training. I used to get on with Hempel quite well because of my, my recreational and sport aviation experience. We had quite a lot of different aeroplanes there, so I used to do a lot of tailboard training and aerobatic mm-hmm. training uh, when I was there too. And I'm very fortunate to fly some, some terrific aeroplanes and take some good adventures with, with Barry. And so I assume then that you went from there into a, a multi-engine job. It seems like it's the general career path. I stayed with Hempels and, um, and became a senior instructor there. I had a grade one rating and uh, instrument rating by that, by that time. The jobs were very hard to get when I was going through GA and uh, gosh, I think, you know, I must have had, by comparison to the progression we see these days, I think I had over three and a half thousand hours before I even got on a, a sniff of a twin. You know? You're right. So it was hard to get a job, but um, I also always felt that... Um, that getting a job straight out of Brisbane into a into a, a, a regional, or in, that, in those days, you know, best we could hope for was something like Jetcraft or one of the charter twin engine charter companies out of Brisbane as a stepping stone to the airlines. I, I always felt that something was was missing, and I'd done done quite a bit of uh, you know bushwork uh, when I was flying the drifters. We used to deliver them to all corners of the country, and I always enjoyed my experiences out west and, and felt that I needed to broaden my horizons a bit. So. I got in contact with uh, a company called Slinger up in Kununurra, it's a big charter company up there, and at the time they were um, they were looking for someone who could do some training. It just seemed like a, a, a good time to make the move and a good opportunity for me to broaden my horizons and, and get a bit more exposure to, to you know, real charter operations in a, in a remote area. So uh, within a, a, a couple of weeks of the call, I, I found myself on a... Um, on a Brazilia flying into Kananara with a, a, an open end, really, and uh, there was no promise of a job, but they said, you know, come up and we'll have, a, have a chat to you. And uh, yeah, I, I think I, I got in there and went up to the front desk, having spoken to the chief pilot, got to the front desk and, and found out that uh, the chief pilot wouldn't be available for, for the rest of the week, so I went and camped in the local caravan park in a tent and hung around Kananara for a week. And, Eventually, the chief pilot, good to his word, saw me and um, took me for a check flight and decided to put me on. That was a great move. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Slinger. They just they had a bit of movement through the company before I got there, and uh, hence the, the requirement to have someone who could do some training. So I, I got straight in and, and did some training with the, with the guys there and, uh, and also learned a lot myself flying Cessna uh, 200 series, mainly initially through the remote area up in the Kimberley. Yeah, one thing led to another, and, and because of the, the, the movement that was happening, at the company, happening in the company at the time, probably within about six months, I, I, I found myself behind the chief pilot's desk myself. Really? Which was a bit of a, bit of a shock to the system. But I uh, had an had absolutely wonderful time up there. The country, uh, for those that have never been, is, is absolutely spectacular from a pilot's perspective. One of the most extraordinary places you could hope to fly around in Australia. Um, Red Rock Gorges and waterfalls and bush strips and some really interesting flying. I actually have a friend who's up there at the moment. He went up initially flying caravans. Okay. And now he's flying a conquest, I think, up that way. Yeah. He's, he's loving it. And some of the photos and, and video footage that he's taken is remarkable. 
Yeah, look, uh, it, it, it was fabulous, and uh, we had quite a big fleet of aircraft, about 20 aircraft, everything from Cessna 206s to, uh, and, the, and the mighty Cessna 207, otherwise known as the Slug, all the way through to the Caravan, Chieftain, Navajo, and so on. But yeah, huge variety of flying, tourist flights around the Bungle Bungles to uh, you know, charter into remote strips, mm-hmm. um, five day air safaris around the Kimberley, which were wonderful. The odd trip to Darwin and Broome, and of course, uh, you know, uh, the wet season is something to behold. I imagine so, we could probably fill up a couple of hours talking about some interesting stories and events that would have taken place up that way. Yeah, well, that, that's right. I mean, um, some of my, uh, my most wonderful aviation memories have, have come from the Kimberley. You know, seeing the seeing the sunset over the Kimberley coast, uh, you know, landing at the Truscott Air Base in the northwest part of the Kimberley, and and uh, you know, swimming waterfalls on a, on, a, on our days off is absolutely fantastic. Single man's dream, really. <laughs> Single man's dream. Funny you should say that because uh, I proposed to my my future wife up there in a in a rusty old orange caravan in a caravan park. Lovely. <laughs> um, and so from the Kimberley. How did, it, how did you get from the Kimberley to Virgin Airways? Okay, well, uh, uh, after a couple of years as chief pilot at Sling Air, we, uh, I, I decided with my, my new wife that uh, we, we'd like to do some travelling overseas. And rather than, rather than leave the company in, in the lurch, I thought the uh, best thing to do would be to uh, set someone else up in the position. So we, we trained up another chief pilot. and I had no other job prospect to go to. Uh, but left with the hope that uh, after we come back from travelling, I'd, I'd, I'd find work. So we were overseas for um, uh, about four months and uh, got that bit of a travel bug out of our system and came back and landed in Brisbane with, with nothing to go to and desperately slow job market. So that was that was a bit difficult. So what year was that? Gosh, uh, that would have been 2000. Oh, well, I should remember quite quite vividly because it was 2001, September 11, ANSET collapse. Okay, all those all things right. happened at the same time. Just when I decided to conveniently leave my my nice, you know, chief pilot role. chief pilot job. Uh, but I managed to pick up a bit of work back on the East Coast. Um, uh, the other thing that happened around about 2001, 2002 was a really bad bushfire season. So I managed to get some work ferrying uh, helicopter crews backwards and forwards from Brisbane to uh, Nara down the New South Wales yeah. South Coast during bushfire season. And um, that sort of kept me occupied. I went back and did a bit more instructing uh, for Hempel and uh and also for a little flying school at Caboolture. Did some RA, uh, RALs work as it became then as well. I've always kept my hand in with the ultralight uh, instructing through my whole career. So um, when the opportunity presents, I've always been able to do some ultralight instructing. So that's what kept me going for a while. And then I picked up a job with uh, Pearl Aviation in Port Hedland. So it was um, back across to the west Western Front and, yeah, Port Hedland and a couple of years flying on a BHP contract From Pearl, I, uh, I I got uh, got the gig with Virgin. Right. Yeah. So I came back to do the Virgin job in 2004. And so you were a first officer on the 737. Yeah, that's right. So started off as, a, as an FO on the 737. Did that for for my first four years there, and then um, uh, was lucky enough as the as uh, the Embraer was introduced to the fleet to to pick up a, a command on the Embraer in Brisbane. So in the final analysis uh, uh, to date, 
uh, Virgin's been terrific because it's it's got me home to, to Queensland. Yeah. Um, back living on the Sunshine Coast, with a family growing up there, and uh, and uh, able to, to uh, enjoy the Virgin job and also to pursue my, my passion up here at Gympie with the, the ultralights. Yeah, obviously in aviation, as you progress from aircraft to aircraft, generally complexity will increase along the way. Was there a a big learning curve between the 737 to the 190? I've got at, at home, uh, amongst my vast collection of, of aviation books, uh, a book on um, Second World War cockpits, and one of the cockpit pictures is from B-17. And when you have a look at the picture of the B-17 cockpit against the Boeing 737's cockpit, the uh, similarities are remarkable. Yeah, right. <laughs> you can see the lineage of the aeroplane, really, the shape of the windows, even the shape of the yoke. It has really remained unchanged, uh, and certainly, uh, if not from the B seven, then from the from the seven oh seven, not much has changed at all. So the the seven three seven, even the NG, whilst it's a, it's a wonderful aeroplane, I mean, it's really become the DC three of the modern era. It's still quite an old aeroplane uh, by comparison to the Embraer. So there's a quantum shift uh, in automation to, uh, with the Embraer, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I really enjoyed that. I guess you know those guys that are familiar with Airbus have, have had that experience for years but yeah it's quite a quite a change going from the 737 to the to the EJ and a, and a pleasant one. And I imagine going from first officer mind you with four years of experience to a captaincy on this new aircraft that was added pressure and, and stress or did you take it all in your stride? Well you, yeah you're, you're, you're right it, it is it's a big thing to change seats and change aircraft but I guess in terms of the, the progression I mean four years to command in an airline is probably seen as, as pretty light, although you know now it's happening even quicker. Yeah, right. Uh, but traditionally, I mean, gosh, you know, guys in legacy airlines might have been waiting 20 years for a command, depending on what airline they were flying for. So I guess it's a, it's a, um, it, it works both ways there. Whilst you know, four years is quick, so you've got to think a bit harder about the, the transition. Uh, by the same token, you know, it hadn't been that long since I was flying as a single pilot in an aeroplane. The vast majority of my flying up until that point had been either as a, a captain in light, you know, lighter aircraft or uh, as a single pilot. So I really didn't think that the jump to the left seat was that, that big a deal because the vast majority of my experience was making decisions and flying by myself anyway. And I, I try to remind guys of that now uh, that I'm in a training role and when I see guys going for commands or getting a bit worried about it, I, I, I try and remind them, that, hey, it's not as if you've never been a captain before. In fact, when you did your first solo, you were the captain, you know. Um, so it's, it's, it's not that bigger transition to make when you think of it in those terms. Yeah, very good. So you do instructional training work with Virgin? Yeah, I just do line training, so uh, uh, I don't do any, any checking, but uh, yeah, I do line training training when it, uh, uh, when they need me on the Embraer, and I find that thoroughly enjoyable as well. Lovely. Mm. Um, and so then your day job's flying Embraer's from port to port in Australia, but your passions with RAOs still? Would you, is that a fair comment? Oh, look, very much so. I mean, my, my passion is, is aviation and aeroplanes, so I really like flying in all its forms. Uh, but I guess if you were to give me a choice, yeah, light aeroplanes, sticking right up, tailwheel, seat of the pants stuff is, is where my real real heart is. Lovely. Um, I enjoy the... I mean, I, look, I'm so blessed because I've got, got access to, to both ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the airline flying is, uh, is an enjoyable intellectual exercise. And 
uh, you know, I love being involved with the technology and the, and the multi-crew scenario there. Um, but really, you know, nothing beats a, a drifter at sunset by yourself with the wind in your head. And that's what we're, we're doing here up at, up at Gympie. So Gympie Airfield's about approximately two hours drive from Brisbane. Um, and it's just off the highway on the left there just before you get into Gympie. And that's where you've based your company. So the Recreational Flying Company, where did that start and, and what's its vision and, and what's the dream? Okay, well, back when I was flying as a, as a first officer on the 737 with Virgin, I, uh, I went in, into the crew room to sign on one morning and I saw in my briefing sheet uh, a name that I'd not seen before, Martin Power, and uh, this uh, guy about the same height and weight as me walked in the door, and uh, except he had, uh, had long curly hair, and uh, came up beside me and we made our introductions. I said to Marty, uh, oh, did you have a good morning? And he, he gave me a wry smile and said, yeah, it was pretty good, actually. And I said, what, what were you doing? He said, flying my tiger moth of course and uh, so that's when we hit it off straight away uh, so Marty um, and I flew a trip together and um, not long after that he took me for a fly in his tiger moth and I took him for a fly in my drifter and uh, our friendship was was, was uh, consolidated and um, yeah we, we, we just found we were very like-minded guys and both had a passion for, for flying at the grassroots wasn't long after that that uh, I, I'd i been involved with the Oxlade instructing pretty well all the time but we decided to start a new flying school yeah Marty and I went in as business partners and, uh, and established what's now the recreational flying company up at Gympie initially working out of uh, out of another guy's hangar with a, 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 a J3 Cub that we registered in the Oxlite category to now having our own hangar and facility and employing a full-time guy and a couple of part-time instructors and, and a fleet of five aircraft and we're having an absolute ball and, and obviously I've seen the aircraft today and, and of course in the hangar is a drifter or two and, uh, and the J3 and uh, an air tourer. Yeah, that's right. At the moment we're, we're just in RAL's uh, flying school, so the drifters, uh, we've got a little fox bat from the Ukraine which is our, our, our nose wheel trainer, but uh, yeah we've got the drifters and the, and the J3 Cub. Got an arrangement to do some limited GA training under uh, another operator's AOC, but we're in the process of applying for our own AOC at the moment, so we're going to branch out into private and commercial training. And with that, um, hopefully offer a, um, a really good product, which will be a combined RAOs GA course mm-hmm. uh, through a commercial licence, where we'll be able to start people off in the in the RAOs aircraft and move them in a logical uh, sequence through to, through to GA. And we think we'll be able to do that and offer people not only a, a cheaper alternative to, to straight through GA training, uh, but a really good skill set when they come out too. And nothing teaches you to fly better than a, a drifter with the wind in your head. The, the lighter RAOs aeroplanes require fairly precise handling techniques. So uh, we think we'll be able to produce a really high caliber candidate, uh, but also a guy that's learned to fly in the old-fashioned, old um, you know, smaller flying school scenario where they're able to really enjoy their flying as they go through um, and we hope that this will be an alternative to people uh, from the cadetships and the other, other more um, contemporary paths that people are taking into, into commercial flying. That's awesome and I think that and I've had a, a chat with a few different people that fly and have learned to, to fly through RAOs versus through GA and, and I'll be honest the stigma seems to be that 
Uh, you talk to any GA instructor, and generally they say, oh, you know, the RALs, they're kind of cowboys and they don't really do things by the book, which I find hard to believe. But I think with that end in mind, that candidate that comes in and learns to fly under your tuition in the drifter, with the end in mind that they're going to be a commercial pilot, well, it's always going to be, you know, aerodynamics, performance. It's always going to be taught perfect from the start right the way through. I think it's a really good recipe. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you raise an interesting point there, and uh, you, you're quite right. I mean, there's the, the banter between the two uh, branches of, of light aviation at the moment is, is, is pretty extraordinary. Um, but most of it's, um, you know, if, if, if people are canning the other sort of flying, it's, it's generally through a lack of experience. I mean, having a foot in either camp, I can, I can see the benefits of both, and I can see that there's good RALs flying schools and not so good ones, and there's probably good GA schools and not definitely, so good ones. Definitely, definitely. Um, the point I might make, though, is that, uh, you know, on the field here, for example, we've got RALs and we've got GA pilots intermixing and having a wonderful time we're all involved with the aero club but my experience is the RALs guys do a hell of a lot more flying and that's probably for no other reason that it's cheaper yeah but that's a good thing that means that, that um you know often it's not they're, they're more current than the GA uh, contemporaries uh, but yeah the more more cross-pollination between the two we, we, we've got the better I think for the industry yeah. I've already, already seen quite a few GA schools branch out into RALs and uh, in our case, vice versa. I totally agree. I think that, um, and I know it's a passion of the podcast also, that whether you're flying heavy metal or you're in a balloon, because you've got space between you and the ground, that's all that really matters. Yeah, that's right. So we've all got a common interest, whether you're a balloonatic or you're a, an A380 captain. Um, it's just that magic of flight. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And, and uh, one of my great old mentors, a guy called Terry Monte, who used to instruct with us down at Burner, sadly passed away early in the year, he used to talk about the, the esprit de corps amongst airmen, which is a lovely old-fashioned term, but uh, I've, I've always uh, appreciated it and looked out for it. And, and unfortunately these days, yeah, look, it's, um, it's often found lacking but uh, if we can we can enjoy the company of other aviators no matter what they fly I think the industry is better for it and, uh, and, and we're better for it as well. Definitely and it, that's what will foster the younger generation getting involved and getting excited mm. you know they see dad I mean I've got two boys myself and three girls well what do you think I want to do with two boys? Yeah that's right. I want to get them flying in fact my girls constantly ask dad when can we go flying again? Yeah um, and to be able to foster it whether it's in a, an RAOS registered aircraft or a VH registered aircraft or if it be a balloon I don't care as long as the kids want to fly. Yeah exactly. You know, that I find very fulfilling. Yeah aviation uh, and all its mysteries is, is one of the most wonderful things in the world and it's kept me occupied for uh, over 20 years now and I'm sure it will continue to occupy me uh, in my imagination well into the future but uh, you're right you can get just as much fun flying a paper plane as you can at Boeing and it's a matter of appreciating it for what it is and it's above anything just the most remarkable thing I think human beings can do. So where can our listeners find you on the web? Okay I'm glad you asked uh, we've got a, a, a website which is simply recreationalflyingco.com and we're on Facebook as well I can follow us um, otherwise uh, the flying school operates uh, at Gympie Aerodrome so uh, if uh, any flyers out there are passing by the hangar doors are open there's always a cup of coffee and, uh, and, and some hangar talk 
going on, they're most welcome to, to drop in. That's a lovely invitation. In fact, I'll be sure to keep my eyes out and ear to the ground with the Arrow Club for when there are fly-ins, because I know there are annual fly-ins that happen here. Yeah, we'll keep you posted. We're planning on having a, a major event next year in 2013, so yeah, it'd be good to see as many people up here as possible in, in all sorts of different aeroplanes. Yeah, absolutely. And one last question. We had a listener email in and, and just wanted us to find out the similarities or differences between ultralight flying in Australia versus, say, the UK or the US? Um, the US, to my knowledge, has got a, a couple of different options for ultralight flying. The EAA probably being the area that would, that would uh, uh, take care of what we would know as uh, you know, ultralight flying over here, the RAOs. It used to be the case in America, and whether it's still the case, I'm not sure, that, that aircraft of a particular weight, really lightweight machines, maybe it's 150 kilos or, or less, can, be, can still be flown without a licence of any sort, but you'd have to check that. Yeah. The UK uh, and New Zealand, the, the big difference uh, with those countries, uh, to my understanding, is that they operate uh, a PPL microlight. Um, there's an organisation called the British Microlight Association, um, that looks after um, that area of aviation in the UK and they've probably got some information on, on their website. Right, yeah, so if the, if the listeners Google the EAA and the British Ultralight Association? Uh, yeah, the EAA for the States and then the, um, uh, the, the British Microlight, Microlight Association, BMA for, for Britain, that would steer, steer them in the right direction. Very good, thanks for that, Lee. No worries. Well, thank you very much for your time, Paul, really appreciate it. And, um, and hopefully something will, will come of this and you'll have some people knocking on the door. <laughs> yeah, so, well, that'd be great. And, and thanks very much for, for having me, Damien, and lovely to go flying with you today. Thanks very much, Paul. Well, fantastic, mate. And it uh, looks like you had a fantastic time there. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things about having uh, Paul on the show is that uh, of all the airline pilots we've spoken to, I'm pretty sure I'm safe in saying he's probably the first uh, Virgin Australia pilot we've had on the show. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, there you go. And a lovely one at that. Yeah, so we should point out that they've got a website up there at the uh, the Flying School Air, that's uh, recreationalflyingco.com and it looks like a nice array of, in, of uh, aircraft there and uh, some fabric covered ones there just having a look at the uh, website there. Yeah, as I call them, the flying broomsticks. They're, <laughs> they're, they're trying to talk me into going up. I reckon it's just like riding a motorbike but you're up in the sky. Haven't done it just yet. Yeah, I know Grant's always trying to uh, con me into flying in these type of aircraft. I haven't been brave enough to do it yet, but uh, I'm sure if we got Grant up to an, air, an airport like that, uh, he would be in in a flash. I dare say he wouldn't even think twice. Yep, absolutely. It, they do have a, an air tour there just before they became the CT4s, a New Zealand-built air tour that's fully aerobatic. So when, nice. when his AAC is sorted out, I, I want to do my aerobatic rating with him. The Minister for War and Finance is saying no, <laughs> and not from a financial perspective, from an I-want-you-to-come-home perspective. Oh, now, come on, I've seen a YouTube video video of you flying in a decathlon. Was it last year, I think, or earlier this year? Yeah, that was when I did my tailwheel endorsement. Yeah, well, there you go. That was fantastic. Yeah, it looked like you were having a good time. Yeah. I don't think, uh, I think at the moment, if I got into a decathlon, I think on the ground is where we'd stay. I don't think it would be able to hoist me off it, unfortunately. <laughs> so uh, you're uh, back in the car and uh, heading back to Queensland and uh, hoping to get uh, some more interviews. I know you've been up there to uh, Caboolture and you've got you've grabbed an interview up there as well, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be able to find some more interviews for you over the coming year. Yeah, I intend on heading up to Bundaberg to go to the Wide Bay Air Show this year, so I want to do a fly-in up there, and had an email from a friend of mine in Toowoomba just last week saying, why don't we grab a 172 from the Aero Club and chuff down to Tamora this year for their, can't remember, the, the vintage flying day that they do? Oh, they do, well, those, yeah, quite often they do those sorts of days, yeah. So they're, they're having one down there this year that he's nutted out, he wants to get into, so he may very well fly down to Tamora, which would be a great little expedition. 
Absolutely. Well, uh, mate, we uh, really appreciate you coming down and joining us here for our 100th episode. I know you've been uh, listening to the show uh, since the very early days and uh, you've always uh, been a great supporter of the show and now a member of the team. So uh, fantastic, mate, and great to see you in person and uh, hopefully we'll uh, get some more uh, content from you in the near future. Yes, it's it's very good to be in Mecca and uh, hopefully I can drop in next time I'm down. <laughs> no problem, mate. It was a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Steve. Hi, this is occasional PCDU photographer and video guy, Stephen Pam. Congrats, Grant and Steve, on 100 episodes. And they said you'd never make it. No, wait, that was me that said that. Never mind. Anyway, well done. Now, where do I sign up for my Roulette's media ride? Actually, never mind that. Where do I pick up my ticket to Oshkosh? A heartfelt congratulations to Stephen Grant from the Playing Crazy Down Under podcast for making the ton. Thank you for your effort and sacrifice, bringing the pressing issues and current events of Australian aviation to the fore. May you continue with the same enthusiasm and vigour over the next 100 episodes. Blue Skies from Damo, the Northern Correspondent. Ever dreamt of flying in a warbird? Why not strap yourself in for pure excitement and let a supercharged radial engine take you up to speeds of 200 knots? Dare to push the boundaries as you experience up to 6.5G, fully aerobatic or simply take in the spectacular scenery of Western Port Bay, French and Phillip Islands with 360 degree views. Come and join us at Adventure Wings in Turidan and take flight in our Nanchang CJ6A. Playing Crazy Down Under listeners get the 15-minute flight for only $250. That's a saving of $30. Call us on 0418 525 658 or visit our website adventurewings.com.au. Flying every weekend and other times by appointment. Adventure Wings. Leave the ordinary behind. Take off for the adventure of a lifetime with Ozair Services and the Turidan Flying School, where you can live out your passion and learn to fly. Book a personalised charter flight to Lake Eyre, Flinders and King Island or anywhere in Australia. Or enjoy an adventure flight for yourself or as a gift with scenic and aerobatic flights in the classic Tiger Moth on weekends. Take flight with Ozair Services at the Turidan Flying School. Go to ozairservices.com.au. Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.playingcrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. Okay, it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Matt Hall. G'day, Matt. Hey, guys. How are you going? Very well, very well. And uh, up there in uh, Sydney again, and uh, just for once, I think, uh, not travelling around. Every time we uh, seem to grab you, you're in another part of the world. Yeah, well, it's, it's been um, been leading that way for the last uh, number of months, but uh, you've actually got me sitting in my own lounge room, which is uh, unfortunately a bit of a rare event, but uh, it's, um, it's nice to be sitting here and uh, just relaxing, watching my wife fold washing while I'm talking to you guys. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Well, it's it's typical of us to uh, interrupt somebody's uh, nice quiet night at home with a podcast interview. That we're we're getting good at that with a lot of people, actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, that's part of what uh, what the modern world's about is uh, 
you know, reaching into people's homes. But um, but it's good. I think it, it really just demonstrates that uh, people can um, you know, people are normal. Even though, even those people that seem to be uh, achieving some things in life, they're uh, they're still in a normal life and um, and it's available to most people. Well, mate, we won't take up too much of your time, but we've got a few topics we'd like to cover while we've got you here. And uh, the first one is an upcoming event that you're going to be participating in: the uh, Blue Mountains Bicentenary Flyover. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, that's uh, something that's been on our radar for about um, six months now. It's it's shaping up to be an amazing event, actually. Uh, something that's probably historic in Australian aviation. So it's it's definitely it's definitely one of those items you look at and you get, man, there's a lot of work coming up for us. But um, it's going to be one of those things that when you complete it, you go, that was absolutely amazing. Now we're talking here up to uh, 300 aircraft, according to the uh, release here on your website. That's uh, that is a lot of coordination. Are you are you yeah. handling all that yourself, obviously, or are you got a team together to do that? No, we're going to pull a team together for it. Um, and at the moment, um, we're still looking at uh, how it's all going to uh, fit together. But I, I'm basically responsible for putting together the operational side of it, which is uh, effectively making a safe fly past. And when you look at it, uh, you know, in the big picture, you go, well, how, how easy is it? You just you just got to start from here and fly to there with uh, and have 300 aircraft do it. And um, <laughs> you, you can go, that, that's pretty simple. But uh, the more you dig, the more you go, oh, man, this is a big, this is a big project. But um, as I said, though, it's, um, it's going to be a historic event in Australia to have uh, 300, you know, up to 300 aircraft to fly along the same route over yeah. a, over a couple of hours um, and it's it's going to be something that reminiscent of um, of you know the 1940s with you know, people standing outside going wow where did all these aircraft come from and where are they going well especially given that uh, when the crossing was done back in the 18 uh, what is it 1813 when they the explorers went across from Sydney out to see what was uh, on the other side of the mountains and into the tablelands and all that it was that would have taken them months just to get across and you guys are all going to fly over that in what an hour or so I actually flipped I've never flown the route before until just recently. Um, so you know, we've been we've been looking at it a lot on Google Earth. And, you know, obviously using uh, a lot of uh, aeronautical charts to do the, the initial planning to decide if uh, you know what's achievable. And I, I took a um, an R44 for a run along the route um, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it's quite a spectacular route. Uh, it's quite a climb. You know, we started off at about. Um, you know, I, I sort of hit Penrith at about you know 1,500 feet and ended up at five and a half thousand feet, uh, just to the west of Katoomba, but still at a thousand feet AGL. So it's quite it's quite a climb, yeah. and the the terrain is magnificent. Um, but there's so many dead ends, and, and I hate to think how many times the explorers went down, um, you know, a um, basically a spur line to end up in a 2,000 foot, um, you know, vertical drop, and go. Well, I guess that's two weeks of our life we're never going to get back. And you know, they turn around and they walk back for two weeks, and they try a different route, and you, you just go, oh my goodness, how um, how frustrating would that have been? And it, it actually oh, yeah. it humbles you because uh, I we live in an age where you end up. Um, if things not if things aren't done today or tomorrow or by the end of next week, you're frustrated. And these yeah. guys were setting off with uh, with an unknown goal, an unknown destination, and yeah, they'd make a mistake that took them two weeks to correct, and um, yep. and they just go ahead and, and do it. It gives you a different perspective, that's for sure. I think it's it's great that we're going to be celebrating the centenary of this. Yeah, and um, I was um, I was at a Bathurst a couple of weeks ago, just talking about what 
what the follow-on events potentially can be out there. Uh, there's there's all sorts of discussions of turning turning it into a um, a gathering of wings out at Bathurst for the weekend as well. Um, and yeah, you know, we're still trying to figure out you know, logistics and um, and and how possible it will be. But uh, we're out there, and it was actually the the mayor of Bathurst who uh, summed it up um, quite well. And she said that it's I think it's appropriate that one historic event is celebrated by creating another. And uh, and I hadn't thought of it that way that, that you go you know what you're right that um, 200 years yeah. ago what they did was uh, was very impressive but I think to to run something in aviation that that's pulling aircraft right from you know if we can get a if we can get a stop pop in the mix uh, right through to uh, Super Hornet and wow. everything between from helicopters and um, and RAA and uh, you know all the warbirds and all these things to just combine across this across this route I think uh, that is that is a special and unique thing that um, that not just the aviation community get involved in um, you know the general public can can just sit out on their back porch all afternoon and watch this amazing parade of aircraft and and hopefully not complain about the noise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess the thing is, too, Matt, it's all about progress, isn't it, in a way? I mean, what Blacksland went with and Lawson did 200 years ago when they made that crossing, that was all about progress. And I guess if you can demonstrate the progress of the aviation industry, and, you know, you know, particularly as it pertains, I guess, to Australia, well, I mean, that's that's another demonstration. It's not only historic, it's a demonstration of progress, and that's quite a positive thing. Yeah, and um, I'm one that... Uh Acknowledges history, but I'm always looking forward to see um, to see what what can be done and what can be improved, and and looking at efficiencies and um, and I think an event like this really sums it up because we're going to you know, say you know we, I know you know we're going to get a number of tiger moths uh, participating and and uh, you know a tiger moth's going to take a bit over an hour to fly the, to fly the route and then we'll get a um, you know a hornet to follow up the rear end which will take about four and a half minutes so it's um it, it's just that alone is actually quite a Quite an interesting comparison to uh, to show uh, what we're doing, and um, and once again, you reflect on the organising side of that, and you go, hmm, "How do I make that happen?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about the roulettes, Matt? Do you, are they uh, are they being considered? Uh, roulettes are all uh, they're they're um have been invited. We're we're currently waiting for the defence public events of significance to uh, to come out. Um, the good news is I've got a couple of contacts um <laughs> in that area, so um so yeah, I, I think we should we should be all right with uh with some defence support there. And the basic plan, yeah, you know, I, I fill you in of, of what it should really um you know in my mind look like is that. Um, we would start off with something you know, such as the roulettes uh, flying the, the route, um, including some aerobatics on route and um, over significant points or public viewing areas, you know, uh, formation barrel rolls here and there and, um, and basically uh, waking up the local community because they can fly low, fast with smoke and uh, very impressive. Um, we then probably put some skydivers through the same route. So, um, you know, a Cessna Caravan you know, or a couple fly down the route and, and um, turf people overboard like they do and uh, and have some people arrive en route at the spectator areas. And then we start the march. And what we're uh, generating is basically four uh, speed zones stacked vertically uh, through basically tubes in the sky that, um, that people are, I'll be feeding people into. So don't think of it like there's going to be procession one after the other of aircraft. They're actually going to be planes going everywhere. Uh, there'll be high-speed planes going going over the top. There'll be medium and medium to low-speed aircraft following the route. So all along the route, there's always going to be a number of aircraft visible at any one time. 
Uh, we're planning on having uh, commentators on route as well that um, you know that are aviation type commentators um, yet to be confirmed. But they they'll be able to uh, broadcast on all the uh, local FM radios and ABC radio um, exactly. You know they're sitting at Katoomba and here comes the the uh, the Connie from Haas. Uh, you know, go through the history of this aircraft, and if you want to see it, you head down to to Illawarra, and you can actually uh, go and have a step through this aircraft. And here comes a Super Hornet. Um, the pilot is so, I mean, flight lieutenant so and so, and um, and um, he only left uh, you know Richmond uh, three minutes ago, and, and just just to really uh, create that uh, that view. And and here comes a Tiger Moth out of Luscan Tire, and he left yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't ask about the hot air balloon, but I think they went towards the sea. But that's just the winds. Don't worry about well, that. Well, I was actually thinking about you the other day and going, you know, what what if we uh, what if we got the hot air balloon up and we somehow tethered it to something <laughs> and we towed it across across the room. Yeah, I reckon you should I reckon you should tether it to that super hornet, Matt. Well, yeah. <laughs> well we, we could actually tether it to a couple of explorers and 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 actually recreate the real timeline. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I like that. As we've been talking, I've been looking at Google Maps, going, okay, there's. Penrith and, oh, that's a lot of tiger country between Penrith and Lithgow. I mean, I remember driving it and I'm like looking at this going, oh, my God. You'd want to have good prevailing winds, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think the prevailing, the weather's going to be, you know, as always with all aviation events, uh-huh. the weather is the, uh, the, the bit that, yeah, you know, I need to effectively divorce myself over the weather to go, you know what, I can't control it. So we have a good weather plan. A mediocre weather plan, and then we don't have any plan. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so um, yeah, just so that we don't end up pushing pushing it, because you know we've got to make sure that it's all done safely and correctly. And and if it turns out that you know what, after all the effort and all the planning, it can't be done. So be that. But um, if we have one of those horrendous westerlies that uh, every now and then uh, creep up and over the hills, not only is the turbulence going to be a factor, I think um, yeah, we, we've had we've had probably a hundred uh, inquiries from uh, RAA pilots already with uh, you know brumbies and jabs and, uh, and and the like, and and just go, man, I hope it's not a strong westerly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I guess mean, I guess the other challenge is going to be finding staging spots. I mean, presumably they can't all, for example, come out of uh, Bankstown. Well, that's correct. Yeah, um, you know, getting everybody to um, yeah, that, that's probably the biggest issue. Uh, once I once I send them on route and I have the correct briefing facilities available so that everyone knows where they're going, how they're doing, it, it actually becomes an easy an easy process for me. Um, the hard part is actually getting people logically to a marshal area so that it's safe. Um, you know, the biggest risk for the whole thing is actually um, you know, in the in the marshal area. Uh, getting people uh, to commit on route on time and trying to launch you know, 300 aircraft out of one airfield is um, you know we've seen airfields struggle to launch 10 air- aircraft in an hour so um, so uh, we're we're looking at ways to creative ways actually to stage out of quite a number of different airfields uh, which is is not necessarily a major issue um, one of the major issues actually making sure everybody is briefed correctly and knows exactly what is going on, um, up-to-date information if we're all departing from different airfields. And um, I've, already been, I've already been talking with CASA um, informally about the, uh, the whole process. Uh, they think it's, um, it's achievable. Um, you know, I do actually uh, get on quite well with CASA and I think they're, uh, they are 
working very hard to um, to assist aviation um, in the current climate, and um, and they are, they are very positive about the event and um, and giving me some leeway in um, in how I can um, look at doing something uh, efficiently um, that doesn't conform to uh, ways that normal air displays have been uh, orchestrated. Well, this event's on in May 25, and if people want to find out more about it, I guess uh, probably the best place right now would be to go to uh, mattholeracing.com and just click on the news tab there, and also at bluemountainscrossing.com.au slash centenary. Uh, and they've also got a Facebook presence, and we'll put some links in the show notes. So, Matt, uh, whilst you've been busy planning that, and uh, you're one of the busiest people we know in aviation, uh, you've been doing some other things, um, helicopter flying, uh, writing books, anything else? <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a few other things apart from that, but yeah, I've, um, I've completed my helicopter uh, commercial now. I'm, I'm, I've really enjoyed um, doing something different in aviation, a new challenge, uh, and helicopter flying is it's quite a, uh, a rewarding type of flying. I've found that um, yeah, it challenges your systems once again. For anyone that's in aviation and feels that they've uh, they've you know been there, done that, and learnt everything, I'd suggest go jump in a chopper and um, and rediscover the thrill of flight, basically. So um, it, it has been uh, has been a, a great thing for me to do. So I highly recommend it to anyone who's got. Unfortunately, the two limiting factors are time and money when you get into choppers. But uh, but uh, you know everything um, everything comes at a price. So it's um it's 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 one of those things that I'm uh, I'm glad I challenged myself to do it. Um, you know we're still trying to figure out why I've done it and uh, and 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 where whether the money will ever come back. But uh, but uh, investing in yourself, you know, invest in yourself and. Um, and definitely, um, I, I think that uh, anything you do the correct way in aviation, uh, you, you know, regardless if you get the uh, investment back financially, you'll always get the investment back in uh, lifestyle. So, um, and, and I've already done that by just taking my family to um, to luncheons in a chopper and landing landing in a vineyard to have lunch. You know, things like that. You just go, well, you know what? It's been worth it already. The last time we talked to you about helicopter flying, I think you were still sort of you obviously didn't have as the sort of experience you've got now. Sort of six or eight months later, um, back then we were talking about the challenges of learning to hover was that maybe something you found the most challenging aspect or were there other challenges that came with uh, you know flying a, a helicopter it's funny actually um, probably the the biggest challenge I've had with flying a helicopter is to not relax too much I think most people that have either, have dabbled in a top of it not seen it through they probably say bloody hell it was a lot harder than uh, I was expecting <laughs> and um, and and that's yeah my first hour is like oh man this is um, yeah how do these people do it but uh, it, it's it's just like um, yeah I compare it a lot to, to fixed wings guys fixed wing guys with uh, flying formation that uh, when you first try it you go oh my goodness this is um, this is very challenging and then some it's it's almost an instantaneous click where all of a sudden you're doing it and you go, oh I'm, oh, I'm doing it. How, how is this working? And it's when you stop thinking about it. And helicopter flying, and in particular hovering, was like that, where you know I was on you know, a flight and we're hovering, and then basically I just became distracted. You know, something else was going on, and I was looking at something else and not concentrating on hovering. Then I realised, hey, I'm hovering. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, in that side of things, it actually wasn't too much, much of a challenge, but. Um, it's been actually the the bad habits of fixed wing that that I struggle with, and that's where I say not relaxing too much. That um, you know, I was on a um, I was on a uh, cross country flight with my family in the in R forty four, and uh, my wife still hasn't been in the front seat of the four seat helicopter yet because every time we we walk up to it, my my six year old boy jumps in the front seat um, <laughs> and shotgun. <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah, exactly. That's what you say. He goes shotgun <laughs> <laughs> to uh, to my wife's like shotgun. 
like, oh, dear, here we go. So, um, so you know, we're flying along. She's always in the back. And then as soon as we get airborne, Mitch will just fall asleep because it's, um, you know, it's just such a <laughs> – one of those, you know, helicopters vibrate and all of a sudden he's, he's done, he's asleep. Yeah. And yeah. so – and you're flying across country. And I, and I just found that was – I was um, flying it like a – like a fixed wing. I was, I was relaxed and I was you know, looking over my shoulder, talking to my wife as we're flying along. And then I had a realization that um, yeah, in a fixed wing, I can do this because if the engine fails in a fixed wing, you know, it's like, well, well that's not good. Where do you um, want to go? I guess, yeah, where, where are we going to take this plane to land? Whereas in a chopper, if the engine fails, you know, you've got about two seconds to, uh, yeah. to sort it out, um, to, to get it into auto rotation. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how high you are, you have yeah. no glide ratio when the rotor stops. So that, that, that was a, um, a, Big when I, you know, I realized that while I was airborne, going, you know what, I'm not concentrating on what's going on at the moment. And if something happened right now, I wouldn't react quick enough to, uh, to what's happening. So that, that's probably the biggest thing with, with choppers is I've, I've had to refocus, you know, after 20 years, 25 years flying fixed wing to, to feel that um, I know where my margins are in fixed wing. I know that when I'm even at low speed, low, low altitude, high speed, or low altitude, low speed, I know, I know how much margin I've got and where I need to concentrate. Um, it's a complete Completely different aspect with, with our rotary that um, no matter where you are, the margin is very small between um, between success and failure. That, it is interesting that you have the different mindset of where you've got to focus and concentrate and all that because uh, I do recall last time we chatted that uh, one of the things you were talking about was that you were having great fun with the prac, you were diving into the prac and you were procrastinating like mad on the uh, theory and the, getting all the uh, exams out of the way. So so well done on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's I was procrastinating and uh, it, it came down to the fact that I went, you know what, this is going to be damn embarrassing if I don't actually finish this thing. So th- thanks for uh, doing the interview and making me uh, go, well, everyone knows I'm doing it now. I better get it. We're here to help. Hey, so, yeah, uh, thanks. So you're tooling, you're tooling along in the R44 a bit. Have you been drooling over an R66 perhaps? I've had a I've had a look at a few different uh, choppers lately, um, and uh, you know it's it's what uh, it's it's like all aviation. It's you know how how long is a piece of string that you know you go oh look at an R22 and you go oh for a little bit more I get an R44. All of a sudden you're looking at a um, an EC130 or something yeah. <laughs> two and a half million dollars later going oh look at that, and then you come back and go look a gyrocopter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, I, I'm all over gyros. I, I totally wanted to get into a gyrocopter. That's that's I I, I think they're they're so cool. But uh, took a ride in an R66 the other day, and mm, very nice, and a lot more lot more energy, a lot more power there yeah. on it. Like where the R44 runs out of grunt, uh, the R66 can get away with a lot more. Yeah, yeah, and that and that's I haven't flown in a um, 66 yet. You know, I've had I've had a couple of rides in some interesting choppers lately, and 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 yeah. Well, you guys know how I am with aviation. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, once once you're airborne, you're having fun. So um, oh, yeah. in the end, uh, yeah, I, I believe that at some stage in my future, I will own a chopper. It's just that uh, I've got a few other things like a new kitchen I've got to buy first. <laughs> Obviously, your your wife is still within earshot, I can tell. <laughs> yes, is. Yeah, I've got a, there's, there's the sideways look right now, actually. <laughs> yeah. Never <laughs> mention never mention helicopter purchases without first mentioning a house improvement. Yeah. That's right, Dave. Kitchen purchase, then we'll get the helicopter. Hey, Matt, and our, hey Matt it seems like uh, every second fighter pilot coming out of the ref these days is uh, writing a book. We spoke to a former colleague of yours, Serge, recently about his book, and uh, now you've put your memoirs down on paper and released your own. Yeah, yeah. that's Our book has been um, 
a reasonably long process. Um, yeah, we we actually start um, started the contract negotiations for that. Um, oh, I think it was about the first part of 2010, um, so two and a half years ago, when uh, we were approached to write a, a book about uh, what how I got to where I was. And uh, and it's like everything. One thing led to another, and uh, you know what started off as just a quick a quick uh, you know small story has turned into a you know a um, I think it's now a hardback as well. So it's a um, oh wow it's turned into quite the um, quite the book now. And yeah, you know, I think that you know hundred and well, I can't even in fact I can't even tell how many words are in it anymore. It's um it's a lot <laughs> <laughs> a lot of words and uh, a lot of rewrites and a lot of uh, a lot of editing. Um, uh, you know, quite a few delays in publication. You know, we, we've you know, we've delayed the publication three times now, uh, just due to um, uh, other events. Um, yeah, <laughs> a number of the other events are the fact that um, there's been a couple of books, like the uh, the, Air, the Inlet Veteran Air Force book and then Surge's book. Um, both of those books, uh, I am the first chapter. They write about me. And it's like, well, now can't really release my book now. <laughs> we have to wait another another six months again because the first chapter about my book is me. <laughs> Yay! Well, nothing like consistency. So, um, nothing like consistency. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this will be a, this will be the third book that's been released with me as the first chapter. So uh, hopefully this one actually hopefully this one works well for us as well, though. So um, uh, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a humbling process, though. I'm 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 glad we've done it it's um yeah it, it's it's humbling it's embarrassing uh to you know, to have your own your own life which you know i consider my life is just a you know i'm a normal guy that just happens to have been right place right time a few a few uh, times and um and and to put your life out in print for everybody else to uh to review and critique and you know, there are going to be reviews and critiques and to uh, to do that is actually um you know it's a little bit scary and um but uh, in the end um uh, it was actually Padita, my wife. She she said that you know what, that doesn't really matter in the end because what we have is a uh, documented diary of uh, of your life that um you know that uh, is great. And um, she's she's read the whole manuscript to my son, and um, and he you know his eyes were like um, dinner plates while while it was being read to him over you know, over a week of uh, what his dad got up to and <laughs> how how silly his dad has been at certain times and uh, he, he now quotes parts of the book back to me going well you know dad when you nearly crashed that F-18 well this is the same situation here I'm like oh god now he knows too much <laughs> yeah, okay. me on my skateboard that's the same thing dad really <laughs> exactly it's like you know, you know I'll, I'll go to drive off and while I'm putting my seatbelt he goes well dad this is exactly the same situation when you're in a hornet and I'm like oh, <laughs> you're doomed <laughs> Oh, exactly. that's fantastic. Yeah, one of the uh, interesting things I find with this book too is uh, when you're getting a forward done, uh, you know, you'd like to pick a big name, but uh, really, mate, uh, Air Marshal Jeff Brown, you couldn't get uh, much better endorsement than that. Yeah, that that's right. That was, um, you know, I've, I'm in a fortunate position where I've got uh, some pretty influential people, um, and and not only they influential, they're um, they're mentors of mine, and um, and to have um, Jeff Brown, um, Chief of Air Force, write the uh, write the forward is um, is is fantastic. I mean, I'm very proud of that. Um, and uh, and and in his forward, he actually relates a few stories that um, that I'd even forgotten myself. And uh, you know, he says, "Oh, there was one time I was with Matt, and this occurred." And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, actually, I remember that." So um, it, it's been really good, and to have to have people like that uh, supporting me uh, does does mean a lot to me because. Um, as I said, you know, embarrassment, uh, humbling, 
uh, why am I doing this? Those, all those thoughts definitely come into your mind as, uh, as you go through this process of basically documenting your entire life of the good and the bad. And then there's, there's a, there is a lot of bad in there. And, um, and uh, you know, to have, to have then someone that you uh, has been a mentor and that you respect and is now in a very commanding place in, uh, in, in Australia, to have them write a forward that, um, you know, when you read it, you just go, wow, that's a, that's amazing that um, this man still thinks that of me after seeing what I've, <laughs> seeing what I've done. You know, I tend to look at the bad stuff when I look back. <laughs> My objective for the, for the book in the end is, um, you know, it's not it's not a money making venture. Anyone who's been involved in writing a book quickly realizes it's not a money making venture. It's definitely not an ego making uh, ego venture because uh, I'd much rather people not know about the bad stuff. <laughs> um, but um, but hopefully, what it is, it's a uh, it's a motivating venture for. Um, the people and, and hence why we put the bad stuff in there because we wanted to show to show everyone that with the ups there's a lot of downs and it's it's how it, it's how you get through the downs that uh, make the ups more um, more valuable and we definitely concentrate on that in the book of um, we, we really dig into you know the downsides you know I've had you know, personal relate failed relationships and I've had I've nearly you know, I've nearly killed myself in aircraft so many times it's not funny and you know uh, all, all those all those types of things. Um, we dig into of how how we bounce back and and uh, and what we looked at for motivation and who we who we used for motivation and and, and uh, if nothing else if if, if you know, a couple of people in Australia can get some motivation to tackle their own problems by reading it that's uh, that's enough reward for me. Now I should mention that the book is called The Sky Is Not the Limit: The Life of Australia's Top Gun. And uh, that's uh, published by HarperCollins. Anyway, Matt, just before we let you go, um, of course, we can't let you go without talking about the Red Bull Air Race now. There's been a little bit of vaguely encouraging news, I noticed, uh, from a few press releases they've put out. Have you heard anything? Is there much more hope than the last time we spoke? Oh, there's always hope. And, you know, some days there's more, some days there's less. And really it comes down to uh, my mood <laughs> of uh, how much hope that I have. But uh, all indications are very positive. You know, we're, we're still continuing to build our future around the return on the air race. Yeah, so I'm not, I'm still not, um, and as I've said the last number of years, I'm still not financially committing anything uh, in particular to the air race. We are starting to take some fairly significant um, changes in direction that I've committed to employing a um, a uh, young technician full time who I believe you guys have met uh, recently. Um, so he'll be moving up to Newcastle and uh, maintaining my aircraft um, with the uh, prospect of developing the aircraft aggressively when uh, when required. Uh, in the meantime, he'll be he'll be involved in um, you know running my joy flight business uh, and um, an air show business as well. So um, I'm developing my business uh, so that if air racing doesn't occur, it's still um, it's still developing, but I'm very much uh, engaged now in um, in setting setting myself up in the uh, in the starting blocks quite well for uh, when racing occurs. We have had uh, recent communications with uh, Austria about it all. They are uh, in a process of uh, recruiting, I guess, um, key personnel for a return of the air race, and um, we have been advised as uh, as pilots to um, to start forming plans um, on a return of the air race. For um, at this stage, nothing guaranteed. Uh, looking at doing some um, media and training uh, events in the second half of 2013, um, testing, evaluating, you know, requalifying, all that sort of stuff, and then um, a full-blown championship in 2014. So we're still, we're still over a year away from a championship, but uh, 
in reality, I think for it to come back correctly, we need to be we need to be spending a year in development to make sure it's done right. Yeah, I yeah, think too, it right. it's it's going to take the world economy to pick up a bit. I think. I mean, I, from my experience, but just being in the media area there at the last one in Perth, I mean, it's it's not an insignificant. I, I couldn't begin to imagine the the amount of funding that it would take to bring all of that equipment. I mean, anyone that's been here in Melbourne that has seen the Grand Prix set up, it's not much different to that, is it? I mean, it's it's huge. Yeah. Well, the, the air race was a it was an amazing. Um, machine of um, yeah, strategic machine really it, uh, it, it's uh, it, that's one of the things they're looking at um, you know, part, part of their um, shutdown and restart has been about how they can uh, do it more efficiently do it um, do it with less financial risk to uh, to one person or one company and uh, and spread that across to um, you know other other people with the ability though to return profits to everybody involved and the world economy I think uh, you know I, I uh, had the uh, fortunate um, position to be trying to uh, enter a brand new motorsport in the um, one of the you know, history's worst <laughs> global <laughs> financial. So it's like, yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, it's um, you know, anything's achievable, and yeah, you know, there's there's some very successful sports that are very expensive sports that are still growing in in these times. Uh, and I think it's been demonstrated um, quite clearly that the the air race is um, is a very popular motorsport, and yeah. uh, you know, when it, when it comes back, uh, it won't struggle for um, for a following or popularity. So, um, we'll and, and then that that then just leads to funding. So, um, in the end, there's there's going I think there's going to be a point where somebody needs to make a decision that the race is on, and there's risk, there's financial risk involved, but the returns, the potential returns, are worth that um, that risk, and uh, that that's that's ultimately that's the final decision that needs to be made. Is um is the potential reward worth the initial risk? Mate, I've got to ask one question. They, uh, there's been some rumour that Melbourne could be the place and people are talking about Albert Park as the place in Melbourne. And, and I've got to say, I don't see that the lake at Albert Park is big enough to really allow a proper Red Bull track to be set out with safety and flight lines and all that kind of stuff. But I, I could almost imagine them using Albert Park as the, uh, you know, the, the temporary airport and them doing it out over St Kilda over the bay. What's, what's your thoughts on hypothetical if it was to ever be done in Melbourne? Um, <laughs> there is there there is discussion about um, Melbourne, and there is discussion about Albert Park as a as a possible venue. Um, have a um, I guess if I've had that conversation with a number of people, with um, people saying that uh, the lake is not um, big enough to run a race, but uh, I guess. Uh, don't think in the boundaries that the race has to run over water. So think about the confines uh, within the, um, the the road perimeters, um, and all of a sudden you realise that the um, you know within that area it's um, well big enough to have a race, and um, mm. it just means that you, you put the crowd line where you need to around the um, around the racetrack. But you know, because you know, obviously uh, we you know, we can fly over land, over water, around trees, so we can we can put the racetrack wherever we want within that area, and um, um, and then, and then it's achievable uh, within Albert Park. So um, it, it's it is a possibility. Um, there, there are a number of venues in Australia that are being looked at. Um, Albert Park is obviously one of them. Yeah, Perth is still very keen to have a race over there as well, and, and Perth is a, it's a proven site, so it's a it's a lower risk uh, yeah. startup 
So. You know what? I think Perth is about the best venue I could think of to have it right there on the river because everybody can see it. I mean, it doesn't matter what side of the river you're on, you've got the, the race airport right there. And as much as we live here in Melbourne, it'd be very convenient for us. I, I think it'd be a shame if it went from Perth, to be honest. That's just my opinion. Well, to tell you the truth, um, the, the Perth race was uh, probably the favourite race of all the pilots uh, because of its uh, proximity to everything. Normally, when we race, we had, you know, we had at least a half hour drive between the hotel room and the, and the temporary runway. And the temporary runway was at least a you know, five-minute flight as a minimum and quite often a 15-minute flight to the racetrack. So you were so removed from the race, it wasn't fun. And then you, at the end of the day, you come back and it, it was almost like uh, you weren't actually involved in the, in the air race because everyone was having this great old party and you know, an amazing <laughs> event that occurred you know, 40 miles away. And then you'd come back, and there'd be three people slapping on the back and say, "Good job." <laughs> so, um, so it's uh, with Perth. You knew you were at the race. Um, you know, Germany was a, was another one that was similar to that, but still, we were a forty five minute drive from the hotel. Yeah, so Perth, Perth in that regard was um, was was a brilliant location. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be happy for it to stay at Perth. I mean, not just because I need to say that because my friends in Western Australia will kill me if I don't. But you know, it's like it, it's like I, I think yeah, I agree with Steve. It just really worked from a uh, from what I saw of it on screen and all that. I wasn't lucky enough to be there. I was stuck in Indonesia at the time and and missed the last one. But it really looked like a great layout. You know, and watches. and in the end, you know, I'll. I guess uh, the first thing I want is, um, like most people, I guess, is I want the race to come back. And then uh, after that, I want to race in Australia. And then if we get down to the details, well, then we can start figuring out exactly where it's going to be. Um, but um, I think a race in Australia, a race and one in Australia is my priority. And um, I end up not having too many preferences. Um, you know, there's goods and bads about every location. But you know, the, the thing is that if we have a race in Australia, it, it doesn't really matter where it is. We're going to get um, we're going to get the uh, the crowd that's going to turn up and and follow the race and and hopefully uh, get behind me uh, getting in there and um, and having a go at uh, being another um, Aussie motorsport uh, champion. So all in all, it's uh, it's heading in the right direction, and um, I'm becoming more and more confident as time goes that uh, we're getting closer to a solution to uh, re-entering the racetrack. Well, Matt, uh, it's it'd be great to have the uh, the air race come back, but I got to say, in the meantime, you've got a mean aircraft in that extra. 300. I, I really enjoyed going up in it, even if my stomach wasn't letting me do more than about five Gs. It's a, it's a pretty impressive um, plane, that one. It's, it, it's funny because, um, you know, I'll, I'll jump in the race plane and uh, zip around, do my thing, and I'll get in the, uh, the extra. And I call it my family wagon, and, um, you know, <laughs> it's a bit of a truck. And then I realised that you know this this is this is actually quite a quite a weapon. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and what you don't really want to go flying with me in the extra after I've been in the MXS because I'll feel like I'm ripping you off and I'd need to really push it hard just to give you some value for money and that's where most people <laughs> end up coming apart. Um, but I, I did hear that uh, Dan O'Donnell took you uh, took you for a run in the uh, extra the other day down at Tourid and and you, uh, your G tolerance probably wasn't. Um, I was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. <laughs> He was uh, he was not happy with himself, Matt. I can tell you. Ah, uh, look, I think like when I was with Joel in this extra two hundred, I only weighed a hundred kilos. I was up total with gear at one hundred and twenty, going oh bugger, 
and my stomach was just not my friend. I, I think I need to get back in shape and um, and and come and do it properly because yeah, I was really hoping that yeah everything would hold together and I'd be able to pull some serious G's and have a really good time. And yeah, um, I had to call, I had to pull out the uh, wuss card and uh, hand back my man card and um, called it uh, like knock it off around the four G mark after a few maneuvers. But Dan was really cool. He let me fly the aircraft and um, apparently I pitched to five G's going into a half Cuban, but uh, it. Was it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It, it is an amazing aircraft, and uh, you know we've got um, the aircraft's been set up quite well. You know we've got um, a Riverina Air Motive engine in it, which. Um the, the engine is probably the smoothest engine we've ever flown behind for a piston engine aircraft. It's um, it's fantastic, and the, yeah, the, we've set the aircraft's flight controls up, um, yeah, so that they basically mimic the race planes. So um, if, if you if you got a chance as you're flying it, you would have felt how um, yeah, quite sensitive, but still uh, docile in the middle. So it centers yeah. itself nicely. Um, so yeah. it's actually a bit of a pilot's plane. It's um, you know, I really like the way it's set up. Well, Matt, as we always say, we uh, we'd like to get you on the show for a quick chat, but uh, as usual, it's uh, turned out to be a wonderful extended chat and we really appreciate it and uh, of course we want to thank you for uh, coming on to this our 100th show a milestone episode and uh, of course we think it's only appropriate given that you were of course the uh, the first guest that we ever had on this show so uh, thanks very much and uh, i guess we'll see you at avalon yeah no it's been uh, as always guys it's been a pleasure i enjoy i enjoy talking to you and i enjoy um i enjoy what you're doing for the aviation community so um anytime and of course you can find out everything you need to know about matt hall at his website matthallracing.com stick around folks a quick break then we're back to wrap up the show with some quick listener mail and some shout outs i look forward to our avalon 2013 series and well i guess a quick look forward to the next 100 episodes hi this is max flake I just wanted to congratulate Steve and Grant for reaching the century mark with episode 100 of Plane Crazy Down Under. PCDU and the Airplane Geeks podcast have had a long relationship, and it's really great to see that these two guys have produced 100 episodes of high-quality content. As a podcaster myself, I know a couple of things. First, Steve and Grant pour more energy into bringing you amazing content than just about any other podcasters around. Also, Playing Crazy Down Under is recognized as a benchmark when it comes to audio quality. Completely professional. And finally, they have Anthony Simmons, who brings you the View from the Lounge segments. Anthony, as you may know, is my favorite Australian. That voice, incredible. So again, congratulations, mates. Job well done. Looking forward to the next 100. Hey, pass me your desktop flight planner. Hey! <laughs> you won't be needing that anymore. Not when you have this. Ooh, iPad. Uh-huh, with Avplan. Avplan is a complete flight planner and EFB tool for iPad or iPhone. You can use it for VFR and IFR, and it has NAPES integration for weather and NOTAMs and unique weather overlays on your maps. Produce fast, professional flight plans and have unparalleled situational awareness during flight with Avplan from Avsoft. You can download it now from iTunes or visit avsoft.com.au. Avplan. More in your EFB. Get your genuine Nanchang CJ6A flight today with Adventure Wings at Turidan. Special offer for PCDU listeners. Adventurewings.com.au. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from up here to down there, as well as across the pond.
and of course extended. First and foremost, I'm a PCDU listener, so a massive thank you for a great 100 episodes. I also want to say thank you to Grant and Steve for all the inspiration and support given to me, Tim, Gareth and all the geeks. So happy 100th episode, may the next 100 be as good or even better than the last and I can tell you that would make me a very happy aviation enthusiast. Happy birthday. Oh and Steve, Boswell says happy birthday too. Oh dear Grant, poor old Boswell. There is a bit of a history to that folks. Peter Johnson is a huge dog lover and Boswell is a basset hound, a beautiful looking dog and uh, of course Peter Johnson. Of course all of us uh, you know, in the podcast world, in the aviation podcast world, we all sort of you know, trade emails and messages backwards and forwards but uh, particularly between uh, Peter Johnson and myself and, and the guys over at, at the Airplane Geeks, um, you know, we're always uh, trading messages and emails and, and all that sort of stuff backwards and forwards through the week and uh, sort of through that process I've sort of gotten to know <laughs> Peter's dog Boswell pretty well and uh, actually I, I have a good history with that because um, you know, I also get along with Simba, Rob Mark's dog as well. Yeah, so there you go. I was going to say, you know, it's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> I should get together with Stephen Pam. You know, if people may not know, Stephen Pam used to produce a TV show called Hound TV. There could be a link there, you know. Yeah, that's right, mate. He's uh, he's right into his uh, his dog aspect as well. That's, in fact, that's how he got into it. He was saying a while back that he'd either do a, a aviation thing or oh, I'd do a dog thing. And he, I think he was saying there's a <clears throat> more of a market for the dogs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I've got to say, Peter Johnson, folks, if you've not listen to Peter Johnson's work over there at Extended uh, Aviation Extended, a fantastic podcast that focuses on aviation in the European region, of course, and uh, they have some fantastic guests. Uh, you know, they work very hard at uh, in- improving the quality of that every time, and they're doing a fantastic job of it. So uh, if you haven't checked out Extended, and of course there's no leading E in Extended, so uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes, Grant, and uh, do yourselves a favour, get over and have a listen to that show. And speaking of superbly produced podcasts, well, thanks to the guys at the uh, Stuck Mike Fcast. Uh, that's another fantastic show. That's a that's a superb podcast and uh, really professional guys there. And uh, of course, we're speaking of that. Carl Valeri is part of that podcast. Grant and I note with interest that uh, he uh, got his A320 Airbus type rating this week. Oh, we should hook him up with that uh, other mate of ours who's uh, who's got an A320 endorsement recently, and uh, let the two of them have a good old chat and compare and see if, see if what they what uh, Carl learnt in the north is different to what our mate learnt down here. Yeah, actually, you know what we should do is um, you know, we can't talk about who that mate of ours is quite yet, but uh, we should get that person to uh, be a guest on Stuck Mike Outcast. We don't mind scheduling their program for them. Yeah, yeah, we could. Well, you know, they were nice enough to uh, to say happy birthday to me the other day, so I, I reckon we can uh, get them on and have some fun with it. We want to send a big thanks to everybody who sent in uh, greetings there for our 100th episode. That's really nice. And, of course, uh, our great friend Max Flight. You know, one of these days I'm actually going to meet Max in person. But uh, as we've, we've quite often said, we normally save these long flowery thank yous for our end-of-year show, and we won't go overboard here. But, of course, uh, you know, Max and uh, Courtney Miller were the, the guys that inspired this show in the first place and uh, you know Max produces uh, a lot of content not only on the Airplane Geeks but he also produces a podcast about podcasting which is called Podcasting Passion so if you're thinking of making a podcast some, at some time in the future well I'd highly recommend that you uh, go and have a listen to that show because uh, Max is uh, very very serious about his podcasting and does a lot of great work and uh, he's a, a great friend to us and uh, uh, certainly been a mentor to me uh, over these past few years so uh, I'm glad that he uh, took the time to record that there in 
and be a part of our show yet again. Indeed, mate. It was uh, wonderful of them to do it. And you're right, the uh, the podcasting passion, it's a it's a great show to listen to. Lots of great tips. And, and even if you're not creating podcasts, it's it's kind of handy to listen in and hear how it's done. Uh, sort of peek behind the curtain, as they say. Well, uh, somebody who uh, shouldn't be peeking behind anybody's curtains, I, I hope he's not doing that. It's the postie. Oh, mate, not the midnight postman. Yes, he's uh, he's managed to uh, make his way out of the street and into our new PCDU computer because uh, you may have noticed, folks, there's not many sound effects in this week's show because we've uh, we've just bought a new computer and the old sound effects machine is dead. Oh, no, the sound effects are dead. Long live the sound effects. That's right, exactly. Now, Grant, we normally say, uh, you know, simulated printed email, but this one's actually a letter that's been sent to us. What? Someone actually killed a tree and put it in the mail and had a real stamp with a real postman? Yeah, because we should mention that. Of course, if you'd like to send us an email, please feel free at any time, down under at gmail.com. But if you'd like to send us anything in the mail, preferably things that aren't ticking, uh, <laughs> you can send that uh, care of uh, Southern Skies Online Media, Post Office Box 70, that's 70, Cranbourne, Victoria, Australia, and the postcode is 3977. And one person who's done that is uh, David Neefs, and uh, David's actually uh, pretty local to me, actually. He said, uh, hi, Grant and Steve. Love the podcast. I quickly download a, an episode uh, every time a new one is available and played in the car on the way home from work and long drives. Well, uh, I'll tell you what, David, if you live uh, out this part of town and you work in the city, that's a long drive, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, even on the weekend when there's not that much traffic, it's a long drive. Now, Grant, of course, you're on Skype tonight. You're not here in the studio, so you won't have seen this, but David's actually sent us a uh, 100th birthday card. So. Oh, that's cool. I was really, really touched when he sent that. So thanks, David. I appreciate that mate and uh, I think uh, what we'll have to do Grant is we've just ordered a new batch of PCDU caps I think we might have to reserve one for uh, David. Sounds very much like it mate and uh, David uh, I see uh, just as a uh, note there you did mention uh, that uh, we, you know, we're having trouble getting an email address onto our mailing list and you haven't received a, a newsletter for a while. Well that's probably because we haven't uh, put one out for a while. We've been <coughs> <a little> busy. <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> my fault I've been busy. Yeah that's right but we've uh, we've checked our records uh, on the uh, on the software that sends out the email uh, newsletter and uh, your email address uh, David is uh, definitely on it, so uh, you should get the next one. Now, uh, you know, you can email us, you can mail us, but the other thing you can do with email is you can record your own voice and you can send us in a voicemail, and somebody who does that quite regularly to this show, and I notice he's doing it to ex- uh, for Extended, and uh, he's a regular contributor to the Airplane Geeks, is our friend up there in Canada, Ian Kershaw, and uh, Ian uh, sent this message into us recently. Steve Grant, it's Ian Kershaw calling from Calgary, Alberta in Canada. It's the 4th of February, only just got round to listening to your latest podcast, episode 99. Got into the first few minutes, starting to enjoy it, then I realised I ought to grab a few moments and sing happy birthday for your 100th edition. And then I realised if I were to do that, your um, viewers or your listeners might deplete in numbers, so I'll refrain from singing your song. Just wish you well. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed, as you know, I've told you before, but I really do enjoy listening to the show. I enjoy the banter. You have a great mix of humour and in-depth articles on a wide range of things. My favourites being the piece on the Airbus 380 engine failure, listening to the captain speaking there about that, and also the pieces you did on flying in Antarctica. And perhaps a sombre moment right now as we uh, recently lost three uh, Calgarians with uh, Ken Borak out there. So our thoughts go out to that family. Uh, I do want to say thank you again. Uh, I wish you all the best for Show 100. I cannot imagine how much time you guys spend putting this thing together. It takes me a week and a half to get around to a quick email to you guys. So I want to thank you. Wish you well. Have a great day. Make sure you record the show before you celebrate. Otherwise, it will just go on and on and on. Take care. Bye now. 
Well, thank you very much, Ian. And I tell you what, some people might say that our shows go on and on and on anyway, but uh, we talked about that recently. And there's a reason for that is because we're not getting them out as quickly as we'd like to. So we hope that by making longer shows that come out a bit less frequently that you can uh, split them up over a few days, a few commutes backwards and forwards on the train perhaps, you know, particularly if they get cancelled. Not that that happens very often here in Melbourne. Oh, no. No, 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 never. But, uh, you know, that's what the pause button's for. That's what the come back and play it again later's button's for. And we've got lots of great content. It's so hard. It's like, you know, pick which is your favourite child. I mean, you know, I have one and I still have problems for picking that. But, you know, it's like, how do you know what to cut out? And what, It's very, very difficult. And we figure every time we talk to people about cutting it down, they all say, no, put more in. So what can we do? Now, another email that came in here just the other day, Grant, it comes from Steve down at Warneet, which is, uh, again, not far from you. In fact, Warneet's not far from Turretin Airfield, which is uh, where we like to go and spend a lot of time with our good friends down there at Aussie Air Services. So uh, Warneet, Steve, and uh, thanks for writing in. He just wanted to know if we could uh, organise an interview with Judy Pay. Now, Judy Pay is uh, very well known down here in the local warbird scene. She's based at Thai Air Airport, and uh, yeah, Judy has a fantastic collection of aircraft and uh, some fantastic work. Uh, I wrote back to uh, Steve there, uh, Grant, and I did tell him that, yes, we have actually been chasing Judy Pay on and off for uh, quite a few years, and, uh, well, we just haven't managed to uh, lock down a time with her yet, but uh, I'll tell you what, I really would like to uh, interview Judy one of these days. Yeah, she said she's she's up for a chat. It's just been her busy or us busy and our schedules have never aligned. Uh, I uh, caught up with her a couple of times, either at the Thai Air Show or when I've dropped by to uh, check out the wonderful aircraft in their hangar and see what the latest news is. But, you know, normally pretty busy. Said hi, caught up, and, uh, well, you know, we'll try and get an interview with her this year. And, of course, Grant, the other person we wanted to mention is our good friend Mick. Mick from the uh, Frankston line, as we'll call him here. And, uh, <laughs> boy, Mick's been sending us a barrage of emails lately, and uh, I'm glad he's enjoying our work. Now, Mick, you haven't found me at the station yet. I thought you might have found me out there on the Frankston line because I work over there every other week. And uh, we just wanted to uh, thank Mick. He sent us uh, far too many emails here since the last episode that we can't really read them all, but uh, he's he's doing some great things. And, in fact, uh, he's planning something special uh, just to say thanks to the American servicemen, actually, American service uh, men and women uh, at Avalon when he gets there. So it'll be interesting to see. And uh, Mick, make sure we catch up with you, mate. We've got a PCDU cap for you as well. And, Indeed. Uh, and perhaps you can come down and uh, spend some time with us at our base, which will be uh, just in the local Geelong area there. We're staying over that side of Melbourne this time. Grant, no more driving up and down the freeway with my head under a towel editing while you drive. <laughs> I'm sure that got some weird looks last time, me driving along and trying to feel comfortable in your in your car and uh, you sitting in the back with a towel over your head. <laughs> it's like so that you could, your silly old laptop screen, you could actually see it in the bright light. It was hilarious. Uh, yes, it was uh, well, the things we do for a good quality podcast. But uh, no, this time we're very we're very fortunate. We're, uh, we're actually making a little bit of money this year, which is fantastic. And uh, that's not only allowed us to uh, upgrade some uh, equipment, which is uh, starting to wear out, but uh, it's also allowed us to uh, set up a base over uh, over that side of the city uh, this year near Avalon. And uh, that's going to be very, very handy for us. Okay, just one more uh, email I wanted to mention here. A friend over in Adelaide, Ryan Hothersall, wrote into us recently and uh, was just mentioning there how much he uh, dislikes NIMBYs and how much the NIMBYs like to uh, make a nuisance of themselves around airports. And uh, he's just mentioning here that uh, they're just trying to uh, cause all sorts of trouble for uh, Parafield Airport over there in Adelaide. So uh, I guess this is a cross that all airports in the modern age have to bear. Uh, and, you know, we see it happening here at Moorabbin too. Uh, you know, every- and Essendon, especially at Essendon. Yeah, well, of course, the uh, outrageous user fees. You know, it costs 68 bucks just to land there at Essendon now. It's outrageous. Well, I think Ben can talk about that because he's had to 
also recently balance up the cost of driving all the way out to another airport versus using uh, Essendon, haven't you, buddy? Yeah, yeah, I, I know that cost all too well. So the Cirrus that I fly is based out of Essendon. So unfortunately, the uh, couldn't really justify driving an extra almost hour out to another airport that's... Uh, doesn't have instrument approaches and all that sort of thing. So unfortunately, Essendon is more useful and Lindsay Fox has worked that out. So <laughs> we've, we've, I've got to pay for the privilege, unfortunately. Yeah, good on you, Lindsay. You're doing just fantastic things for aviation. <laughs> he is. Well, come on. Somebody's got to pay for the fuel for his uh, Gulfstream 5 or... And Global the Hell Express or whatever, whatever he's flying this day. Anyhow, Anyhow, moving right along. Let's not talk about things that frustrate me because uh, we could be here for hours. I will mention, though, that, of course, this is an election year this year and uh, we, we will be uh, hoping to uh, talk to some politicians. I really would like to talk to Anthony Albanese this year and uh, have a talk to him about some uh, aviation issues as the election looms closer, but uh, we'll save that one for a bit later in the year. So once again, thanks to everybody that's uh, taken the time to uh, write in and send us emails. Uh, you know, right since the inception of this program, uh, it's, it's always great. We like to engage with our audience and uh, we do that mostly actually we do it mostly on facebook these days we've, we've tried the forums thing that's that's sort of gone by the wayside these days but uh, facebook is where, usually where we uh, catch up with most people but uh, we also have a lot of uh, emails coming into the show these days so please keep them coming folks if you've got story ideas we we do our best to get to them we, we can't always uh, do everything because you know we, we do have day jobs and it's a little bit difficult sometimes but uh, we we do our best to catch up with stories and uh, some of some of the people we've caught up with over the years have uh, come uh, directly as a result of suggestions uh, and and even contact numbers and that sort of stuff that are provided by our listeners. And we, we always appreciate that sort of participation. It's, it's a bit of an online community here and we want to promote that concept, uh, you know, for the next hundred episodes. Yeah, no, that'd be great, Steve. It's, it's always good to hear from our listeners and uh, a lot of them have, yeah, they've gone on to become presenters on the show too. Okay, Grant, time for a bit of uh, housekeeping here. And you may remember we put the call out for our uh, 750th Facebook follower and we decided we'd have a bit of a competition there to uh, give away a flight courtesy of our friends down there at Oz Air Services at Turidan. Uh, Grant, we decided that uh, this was a little bit uh, hard to work out because uh, after all, uh, many of our listeners, well, don't live anywhere near Turidan, so that might be a problem. So we asked those of who were interested in going into the draw to uh, say hi to us on Facebook and a number of them did. So we've uh, we've got them all on a list here and uh, to help us draw these out of the hat, I've got them here in my uh, Sport Aircraft Association of Australia's uh, cap. We've got all the entries uh, here and I'm welcoming to the studio and it's taken me a hundred episodes to get it into the show, my lovely wife, Kathy. Hello, Kathy. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm very well. Welcome to the studio. Have you ever been in here before? Um, on no occasion, yeah. Yes, well, I'm sure our listeners would love to know how you've become a podcast widow, but we could we could talk about that or not, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say the only time she comes into the studio is to prize you out of it. That's right. That's right. In fact, I think that's why she's coming here now, but we're going to uh, shoehorn Kathy into being our barrel girl. She's going to draw it for us. Now, you have to picture this, folks. I'm holding up the Sport Aircraft Association of Australia cap. Kathy is reaching in. There it is. Genuine sound effects. Pick a number, any number. Yes, please. I'd like to see him do this on television. Yes. Okay. And we have number four. Number four. And number four is Gary Murphy. Yeah, friend Gary Murphy. So there you go. Gary now, Gary has sent us tons and tons of emails over the years and he's uh, always in contact with us on Facebook. So, uh, Gary, if you'd like to uh, get into contact with us here, I know you know the email address, playing crazy down under at gmail.com. Uh, that trial instructional flight in the festival aircraft down there at uh, Turin and Flying School is all yours, mate. Uh, drop us a line and uh, we'll put you in contact with our good friends down there. Yay! Yay. Congratulations, Gary. Absolutely. Welcome now, I must, I must say, mate, I must say, in amongst the rather large list of people who stepped forward and said they'd be in, there were three special mentions. Mac, I live nowhere near Australia. Cobal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, Mac, Mac lives in America somewhere. So, Mac, you, 
We could have put you into the barrel, mate, but uh, maybe if we uh, jag a trial instructional flight in your part of the world, we'll, we'll let you know. Julie, I work behind the desk at uh, Ausair Services Oats. Hmm, yeah, I don't think it was open to staff. Sorry. Well, Julie, who actually uh, enjoys Kathy's baking every time we do our open days down there. <laughs> that would be her. And the uh, final special mention has to go to Stephen. Oh, no, I'm not an instructor at Aussie Services, Van der Velden. I mean, yeah, like if he won it, yeah, he'd be taking himself up for a flight. That could get really awkward. <laughs> So there you go, folks. Thanks very much, and congratulations again, Gary. Uh, just get in contact with us here, and uh, we'll uh, put you in contact with our friends down there at Turidan. Thanks, Kathy, for stopping by the studio. You should come here more often. I should. Maybe we'll do this again. Maybe maybe on episode 200, eh? Okay. All right, All right no worries. Deal. Oh, mate, by episode 200, Kathy will be running the show. Oh, good. We can take a break. Uh, no, 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 guys. I think she should run her own cooking show. Yeah, I've That's, been... I've... That fudge... My God. Oh, I know. For those of you who don't know, uh, my wife uh, is a uh, champion competition cook, actually, and uh, that's not just because of my ever-expanding weight waistline. She, uh, but it helps. Uh, it does It does contribute to it. I'm, I'm saying that anyway. But no, uh, my, <laughs> my wife wins all sorts of uh, fantastic awards at uh, many of the local shows around here for our American friends, the equivalent of county fairs and state fairs, all that sort of stuff. And uh, she's a champion at the Royal Melbourne Show uh, here in Victoria. So there's lots of uh, awards for her cooking that adorn our, our house, our Land room is uh, covered in them, so yeah, they're becoming new curtains. That's right. In fact, uh, I'm I'm trying to encourage Kathy to consider the idea of doing a cooking podcast. But uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I do enough podcasting for everybody in this house. Oh, this sounds like a challenge. So I think that brings our 100th episode to a close as we tick over the two-hour mark here. Another long show, but I tell you what, there's been some fantastic interviews there. We wanted to make sure we got all of those out so we could uh, clear the decks a little before Avalon. As we mentioned earlier, there will be an audio version of Playing Crazy Down Under coming out every day for Avalon. And as is usually the case when we do long events like this, uh, we normally bank enough interviews to make at least two more shows out of. Bigger team, chance to get more content. And uh, who knows, it could be a one-hour daily audio episode this time as opposed to the uh, 30 to 45 minutes we're putting out most days. So uh, there's lots of content generated at Avalon. There's all sorts of interesting people to talk to. We're looking forward to bringing it. And we're very happy to uh, see that we've got some new sponsors coming on board uh, for that series and uh, very gratifying, of course, to see that we've got some sponsors uh, chasing us these days and uh, looking to buy advertising in the show. And if you're an aviation business and you'd like to do exactly the same, feel free to uh, drop us a line anytime. And for those of us that have written into the show and asked about how they might like to uh, you know, drop us a donation or something in, in response to our uh, 100th episode, we've had a few people do that. You know, We do we do have a donate button there. I might suggest maybe a dollar for each episode that you've listened to, um, but uh, certainly uh, Donations are uh, appreciated, very much appreciated, and we, we do get them from time to time. Uh, we don't really talk about it too much, but really, uh, whatever you think is a fair thing, if you'd like to send us a smaller cash donation, we, we, we can always put it to good use. It certainly doesn't go uh, in grand on my pockets. It, it all goes back into uh, making this a better show. But uh, really, seriously, uh, it's uh, thanks enough just that you uh, like to listen to the show and that you enjoy it. So uh, we're just happy to have you along for the ride, and uh, we hope that you'll stick with us uh, you know, into the future. We've, uh, we've got big plans for the show, and we'll be producing uh, many, many more. That's right. We do have a donate button, but honestly, the best thing you can do, spread the word, get more people listening, because uh, the more people that listen, the easier it is for us to uh, convince other companies to come on board. And uh, it's just a big chain reaction. More people listening, more chance of somebody giving us uh, some leads to a great story that we haven't already thought of, and uh, more chance for us to be able to uh, bring on some advertisers who can help uh, offset the cost of us traveling around the place. So yeah, all good. And uh, thanks for everyone for listening. We're uh, really looking forward to the next time. 
100 episodes. HTC Ben, we will see you at Avalon. Thanks for all your help. And, uh, you know, as we mentioned, you started as a guest on the show and uh, now we've shackled you into becoming an assistant slash occasional co-host. And uh, thanks for all your help, mate. Not a problem. And uh, looking forward to the next 100 episodes and uh, looking forward to running around uh, with a media pass attached to my neck uh, for the next couple of weeks at uh, Avalon. So we'll see you all at Avalon, folks. Make sure you stop by and say hello if you see us. But in the meantime, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, there's a line from the past. Hey, Grant, just remember this. It's still what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer, Grant McHeron, ATC Ben and Damien Rose. You can find us on Twitter as PCDU and for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow or any advertising inquiries, go to our website, plaincrazydownunder.com. Playing Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. <laughs> oh, that was me! Oh. Come on, let's go. The red light's on. Ah! <laughs> red light district. That's it. Oh, Kathy. Well, I tell you what, uh, we uh, we can't project now. Gee whiz, I stuffed that up. Tonight. <laughs> Again, Visha? Again? There you go. <laughs> and welcome into the show this week. And uh, as it's, it's a little be. bit broken on my end as well. So uh, if I end up saying, uh, say again, you guys can can uh, splice it out, no problems, Kane. Yeah, we're, we're good at that, mate. <laughs> Steve <laughs> makes me sound good. He can work miracles. That's how we it's make ourselves good. sound like genii at this end, mate. Pause while I check this. <laughs> click, click, click. <laughs> Hello, Google. <laughs> Stand by uh, for fact checking. <laughs> and I'm using Wikipedia. What's this about fact checking? Oh, God. <laughs> fact. 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 Let's face it, we taught them everything they know. Streaming lots of aircraft out of one or more areas. And, uh, yeah. Oops. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You can hear the phone ringing in the background there. That's, uh, that's all sorted now. <laughs> what happens <laughs> now, a- you, uh, do, you do interviews when I'm sitting in my lounge room. My phone rings. <laughs> <laughs> go figure, go figure. I'm going to bite my teeth about uh, Oprah and a bunch of her fans coming down under because um, mm, no comment. No wonder they've taken an A380, though. <laughs> Grant, really? You remember we're talking to an American audience now. I know, I know, but most of my American friends have the same comments about Oprah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, let's manage to alienate us from most of our fans on the Airplane Geeks. This might be our last uh, Australia desk report for a very long time. Oh, don't tease Dan like that. <laughs> there you go. He thinks we speak funny. Imagine if he had to fill in for us. Look, mate, I've got to say, if you've got those strong westerlies, the lunatics will be sitting on the ground going, oh, we're going somewhere else because we'd need a very strong easterly to get over there at any, any time. Yeah, I'm pretty out. sure that there's not many sea breezes that make it to Bathurst. <laughs> <laughs> not really, mate. Not really. <laughs>
<laughs> I'm looking at this guy now. That's a big no joy. <laughs> uh, <well this laughs> yeah, you end up at uh, it's not a race in New Zealand, mate. Uh, I know, and we've got lots to talk about in the detail section. So in the brief area. Uh, oh God, sorry. All I could think of was wearing my briefs. But anyhow. Uh, Man, there's the first blooper. Don't, don't do it to me. <laughs> okay. Keeping it brief. The RAAF. Now, what are we going to say about this? That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a great throw. It's a great throw. I know, but I, I, bet, I bet you Virgin don't want to hear. What, what can we say about this that's interesting? Guys! Jeez! <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very very uh, uh, similar to podcast editing, I might just tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, lucky this is your full-time job, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. That's my wife. Don't tell the trains. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hey, we're ready. We're ready. La, la, la. Mm. Well, speaking of people in la, la, land, let's talk about the chief executive of Sydney Airport, Grant. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was brilliant. Segway of the year. <laughs> that was gold. Okay. <clears throat> Recovery. Oh dear. Anyway, come. Uh, on. I just need to check something. I'm sorry. That was brilliant, dude. <laughs> Got to pull up. Got to pull out a good one eventually. Hello, Maja. Hello, Faja. Smoke <laughs> 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 a pancake. <laughs> Are we ready? Right. Okay. The yes. hardest thing about this one is going to be keeping on track, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's an outtake. All right. G'day mates, Leo Laporte from This Week in Tech with my bad fake Australian accent saying I like the Plain Crazy Down Under podcast, right? Right. Sorry, you reckon, Steve? Pretty cunning idea of mine to fly a hot air balloon over to Oshkosh, yeah? Absolutely, mate. Whereabouts are we right now? I think we're about a third of the way there, mate. We're well and truly over the Pacific. We're getting a good breeze here. I think we've got just the right altitude. Should get us there to Oshkosh in a couple of days, mate. Awesome. I can't wait to get there. It was for 2010, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. Come on, man. Balloons are cool. It's the best way to fly. Anyhow, um, okay, so that's that tank sort of running low. I'd better get ready to... Steve, where are all the other tanks gone? Tanks? What tanks? You know, the big cylindrical things full of LPG that we burn to keep the balloon in the air. Oh, oh. That, that whole compartment of this basket should be full of them. I didn't think we needed them. I chucked them out. Hey, all I can see in here is a lunch bag and a didgeridoo. <laughs> I needed more room for my lunch. Oh, no. This thing can't fly without any more gas. Uh, I've, I've drained... Hi, this is Matt Hall, Red Bull Aeros Pilot number 95. So you're listening to Playing Crazy Down Under. You're listening to Playing Crazy. This is Nigel Lamb for, uh, all the way out from uh, England, uh, enjoying uh, New South Wales and looking forward to seeing you all in uh, Perth in April 2010. Hi, this is Pete McLeod, Canadian Red Bull Air Race pilot, and you're listening to Playing Crazy Down Under. Hi, this is Hannes Arch, uh, Red Bull Air Race Vice World Champion in 2010, World Champion in 2008, well, and you are listening uh, to Crazy Plane Down Under. All right, no worries. Well, we better kick this off. We don't want to get, uh, we don't want Kira Lee to be upset with you or us. No, 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 no. Never happens. Never happens. I'm an angel. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I've got that on tape too. Well, g'day, folks. Welcome back to Flying Down Under. I'm Steve. And I'm Grant. And Steve, what are you doing? Is that your old school uniform? Yes, and I can't breathe in it, Grant. It's a little tighter than I remember it. Well, you know, it's been a little while, mate. Uh, it's been a long while, mate. In fact, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to take a breath. Ready? 
Oh, it goes all the buttons. Oh, mate, that's that's really tragic. Uh, what are you trying to do? Well, mate, I was trying to fit into it because, you know, uh, recently I went back to my old high school. Back to your old high school? What, did you have a reunion or something? Well, no, in fact, Brentwood Secondary College, which is my old high school from sometime way back in the last century. Gee, we seem to be talking about the last century a lot, mate, don't we? But, uh, yeah, they're actually running an aviation program these days where they're teaching young children the joys of flying. Wow, that's really cool, mate. In fact, yeah, that's when you recently went back to the... So it's um, ag flying, ag... F- we'll just edit that bit, Steve. <laughs> Get my tongue around my teeth. We can chop it, you know, we can chop it all out. <laughs> Very low tolerance for, what am I trying to say? Edit there, Steve. Um, and how low do you go? Oh, we did that one. Oh, right. yeah. Edit, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Best part of the job of running fencing. We've done that and that and that. Right, you're not going to like this. You've been listening to another episode of Name That Plane, the crazy panel program in which we look at trying to understand the world of aviation with absolutely no understanding. Our two team captains have been Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran, and our panellists have been Anthony Crichton-Brown, David Vanderhoof, Kathy Mexted, ATC Ben, Dan Morris, Baz Sheffers, Peter Johnson, and Trufo the Wonder Dog. I've been your host, Anthony Simmons, the Infrequent Flyer, production by the Melbourne and Metropolitan Tramways Board, sound effects by industrial light and magic and tipsy whipsy no dogs have been harmed intentionally production of this program